Where do we go from here on episode 63 of So Many Insane Plays? Welcome to episode 62 of So Many Insane Plays, a look at the abandoned restricted list update, the Q1 metagame, and what they mean for the future of the format. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this episode, we have a few upcoming events we want to touch on. Big one is Eternal Weekend Paris, coming up at the end of the month still. That is March 31 through April 2. For details on that, you can see bizarreofmoxon.com. Speaking locally, RIW's monthly here in eastern Michigan is on the 19th. And we have a new... Of March? Yeah, that's right. And we have a new monthly series starting up in BC Comics in Battle Creek on the 25th. I'll be going to that one. The BC Comics team is endeavoring to coordinate with the RIW team so that their events don't overlap or conflict, which is a great thing for local vintage. And I have a feeling that the first event in Battle Creek That's is great. going to be a good one. Is that is Battle Creek a suburb of Detroit? Where is Battle no, Creek? No, uh, so the RIW is over on the east side near Detroit. It's about an hour outside. Yeah. Uh, Battle Creek, though, no, is a town on the west side near Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. It's about an hour south of me in Grand Rapids. And they have a lively vintage, I'm sorry, they have a lively magic scene in Battle Creek and Kalamazoo, but they don't have quite so much vintage. So this is kind of a new thing for the west side of the state, which is nice. Well, speaking of west mm-hmm. side... We have a, a Udo Games event, vintage event, in April, April 2nd, Sunday, April 2nd, in Berkeley, California. So Bay Area folks, peeps, show up, support Vintage in the Bay. It should be a great time. For those, for all um, of those of you who won't be going to Paris. <laughs> right. <laughs> what about your uh, recent article, Steve? Well, I'll just remind everyone that the Gush book is up and, and live and... Uh, um, been getting really good, uh, I think, a lot of uh, positive feedback on the Gush book. A lot of people have been telling me how much they enjoyed it, which is great. Um, you know, just people who have been reading it, sharing it, spreading the word. Um, I've sent a few to um, some friends, um, and uh, just I think it's it just turned out beautifully. It's, it's wonderful. So we'll post the link so folks can either get a hard copy, paper, hard cover, paperback, or if you prefer to read an e-reader version. Um, I also have published an article, a free article on Eternal Central in early February called Notes on the State of Vintage. It was kind of a, I don't know how you would characterize it, Kevin, but I thought it was a relatively medium-sized to short short essay on vintage and the state of vintage. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the article was to try and suggest that there are these different perspectives for looking at the format you can look at it kind of from a year-to-year annual perspective from a kind of quarterly perspective and then or a monthly perspective or even a more granular you know day-to-day weekly perspective and each of those perspectives 
is um, gives you a, a different view or understanding of how the metagame evolves and also is animated by how people are situated relative to vintage. So paper players are more likely to have the annual or monthly perspective and daily MTGO players are more likely to have that that third perspective. And so I talk about how those perspectives overlay or don't um, and what it means for how people feel about the format, whether they're happy if they reflect on it or whether they're discontented and, and what that means. And in particular, I pointed out that you know, the eternal format is intended to not evolve very quickly, yet the rhythms of Magic Online, especially daily play, um, I think can kind of create a sense of ennui or, or concern with stagnation that really doesn't exist in paper or certainly not to the same degree. Um, so I, I kind of get into that a little mm -hmm. bit, and I think it's an I think it's a helpful. In fact, it's one of my articles I'm most proud of writing. Someone recently asked me, they were combing through my massive Star City Games archive, and I have well over 250, I think probably over 300 articles that I published over eight or nine years on Star City Games. And they were asking me, they were reading my entire, you know, my entire <laughs> backlog of articles, and they're asking me which articles they thought were the best or my favorite. And I said I thought that article I just wrote on Eternal Central, and I've written about 50 or so articles for Eternal Central. It was one of my favorites. But it did take me back, and I was thinking about on my Star City games, I really enjoyed. There's a TPS article, three-part series I wrote, and then also my visit, visit to Wizards and on the reserve list I thought was pretty good. But speaking of article series, another thing I'll just mention is my old school series. And I think since we last podcast, I published uh, a tournament report it, it uh, Eudaimonia playing old school, except instead of playing 93-94 with Fallen Empires, we added Ice Age mm. to the event. Um, we, of course, restricted Necropotence. And I've since played another event with Ice Age. And I have to say, I'm, Sarah Worthing suggested I call it Summer 95 because it doesn't have uh, Homelands. <laughs> and it's probably, it may be my favorite old school format because... Ice Age just gives so much. 93-94 tends to be organized around the deck and decks that are trying to attack the mm -hmm. deck. I think it's slightly overstated, but the results tend to bear that out. When you add Ice Age, you, you add Jester's Cap, which just directly attacks the deck. And almost any deck in the format can play with Jester's Cap. You add, of course, Necropotence, even though we restricted it, it's still a force. But then there's so many other interesting cards. So I talk about Essentially, I reversed engineered a 1997 Type 1.5 deck by Alan Comer, mm. a reanimator deck. I re reverse engineered it into 1995, and I, I won the tournament. And it was people <laughs> felt like it was unbeatable. Now the way to beat it is you have to sideboard Tormod scripts, but it's essentially <laughs> a dredge deck. It was great fun. So the article, the report which I published in January was basically a primer on a history of reanimator from the very, very origins of Reanimator to, you know, essentially the theory of Reanimator and then a, a discussion of my deck and card choices. And I thought there were some really interesting card choices I made. So in addition to having, you know, Bizarre Baghdad and Demonic Consultation to find it, I played with, for example, Sinbad. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons Reanimator is viable and Ice Age is because Ice Age gives you Dance of the Dead, which is another animated effect. Right. But almost as important, if not more important, is Ashen Ghoul. Hmm which is an uncounterable uh, win condition, which means, which I actually, you may recall, in 2006 when we were playing 
Manalist Dredge or very Mana Light Dredge, mm-hmm. I played Ashen Ghoul before Future Sight was released in Dredge and Vintage when I top forward this top eight of the Star City Games events, Power Nines. Um, and Ashen Ghoul is very important for attacking the control decks. Um, but I also got to play with cool cards like Pool or Kraken. <laughs> um, and then more recently in the event, I played uh, an old school event with Ice Age, which I built a, recur- a recursion deck around Forgotten Lore which is a regrowth variant mm-hmm. in uh, in Ice Age. Um, and with uh, Zurin Orb and Glacial Chasm and a few other Ice Age cards, I built a very robust combo deck. I, I had a, a couple turn two kills and uh, almost a turn one kill um, <laughs> with it. In old, and this is summer 95. It was pretty fun. Hey. Um, yeah. So it's a great fun. But I wanted to mention, Kevin, and you and I have talked a little bit about this. I've my 10th article in the series is called Rules of the Road. So the way I've set up this old school series is you click any article and you can see all the previous articles. So it's become kind of like a body of work. It's, In fact, I'm mimicking Oscar Tan's old articles where he would, in his kind of series on the deck, at the top he'd have all the previous of the deck mm-hmm. articles that you could read. Um, but there are three fundamental questions you have to decide when play, with deciding whether to play old school. First, which uh, sets to permit Second, uh, which banned and restricted list to use? And third, which set of rules to apply? The third one might seem the strangest, except that virtually every old... In fact, I think every old school community deviates from the modern rules in some mm-hmm. way. Um, now, the most obvious way is Chaos Orb, which is not exactly a rules thing so much as it is a ban and restricted list thing except it actually is a rules thing because you have to figure out how to operationalize dexterity cards in ways that are actually feasible Um, and there's so many things that i talk about in the article about that which i won't get into but i will also point out that eternal central and a number of other groups want to reincorporate mana burn in fact, a lot of people in my community want to reincorporate mana burn, which is a rules issue. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is that mana burn actually makes cards function much more like they used to. So cards, for example, like mana drain, and perhaps more importantly, cards like Su Chi become very different when you have mana right. burn. You know, you, disenchanting a Su Chi can be a game-winning play with mana burn. <laughs> Disenchant Su Chi and you're end step or upkeep or something and that could be four damage to the face um the the other thing about um the rules thing is that until recent errata on winter orb people wanted um artifacts to work as they did before fifth edition which was that continuous artifacts if they were tapped and of course continuous artifacts is no longer a card type turned off and there was a period in which some conti- formerly continuous artifacts worked like that, and some mm-hmm. didn't. So Howling, Howling Mine was turned off if tapped, but not Winter Orb. Now, they've re-errated Winter Orb to fix that, but um, that was an example of people deviating. So I've mentioned all this to say that I published an article on each of those three questions I set up. And I set up all three questions in the first article. But I've been working really hard, and it's taking a long time. In fact, it's one of the hardest articles. It's one of the hardest articles I've ever had to write. <laughs> which is canvassing and presenting all of the rules options for different players. So I've already asked this this trivia bit to you, Kevin, but for our audience who's listening now, 
especially players who played in the 1990s, see if you can remember when were interrupts phased out of the game. Kevin, I asked you that question. Do you remember the answer that you gave me? Now that you, you know the correct answer now, but do you honestly, remember? I forgot since last time we talked about it. <laughs> but I because I found the I found that I was so far off in my recollection of the thing. I think you probably said 96 or 97 or something yeah. like that. The truth, the truth is that interrupts were phased out in 1999. Yeah, in sixth edition. It feels so much later than inter- than my recollection. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, the rules are kind of a weird thing where the rule evolution of the rules, first of all, is something that once the new rules come in, we kind of forgotten the forget the old rules because we don't need to know it. And not only that, but we're, it's like living in a new paradigm or a new reality. We become autom- It's almost impossible to remember what the previous reality was right. um, in in a kind of clear way. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm actually going through all of the areas of the previous versions of the rules that players might be interested in, let's say, reviving for old school consideration or play. Mm -hmm. And what I'm essentially doing is canvassing. It's been arduous because I have to, I've had to read every rule book and kind of every, (laughs) you know, from every edition of the game, um, really since the beginning. Um, But it's actually been really fascinating. And I'll mention one or two things about it, um, and then we can move on, because I know this is this is a very, very long announcement. But I think it's really interesting for old school players, and the article will hopefully be interesting. And there were some people who tried to dissuade me from doing this article. <laughs> uh, Ethan Fleischer, one of our listeners, said he thought it was probably uh, too overwhelming to attempt. And it, it, he may have been right, but I think it's going to be worthwhile. In particular, the differences between first edition rules revised edition rules, fourth edition rules, and fifth edition rules are fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, And what I want to do in the old school article that I'm writing is essentially, not only do I want to identify what some of these key differences are, because that's just the history of the rules. That's not really what motivates me. But what I want to do is identify pieces or elements or components that players could take as a module, pluck out and apply into modern Mm -hmm. rules. So let's talk about interrupts just for a second. I actually think it is possible without too much difficulty to play with interrupts in modern old school. And I think no one has really seriously thought it through because it sounds just, it just sounds too difficult because we no longer remember really how interrupts worked. Yet making some cards interrupts like power sync totally and dramatically changes a set of interactions. And I think it's possible to do it, and I have a very discreet proposal for how to do it. Um, and I actually want to try it in some testing just before I would do it in a tournament. But uh, there are so many different pieces of rules. So another rule that wasn't a rule, but it was uh, it was a floor rule that was announced, um, I believe, the summer of 94, is the mulligan rule. Um, and the mulligan rule, is the, the all-land, no-land mulligan rule is a very interesting rule that was announced with the 613-94 floor rules. Um, and there are elements of it that I think are interesting for contemporary play, especially with old, with, uh, old school. I, I, I'll just let people read my article to see the ins and outs of it. And there are some other things as well. But I wanted to mention one specific thing. There's so many different things that I think are relevant and different for old school to consider, you know, such as dying at the end of phase or not, phases or not, mulligans, um, 
how you interact with artifacts. Um, but the one thing that I think is perhaps the most important thing I've been looking at is timing. Timing rules have gone substantial changes. The, there was no rules change between Unlimited and First Edition, so they're considered the same edition in terms of the rules. The rules changed with Revised, Revised Edition rules, aka Third Edition, and then massively again with Fourth Edition. But And I've had a little bit of discussion with you about this, Kevin, but I want to point out something that I've observed, and that is that you might think, Kevin, you might think, or anyone listening might think, that the further back you go, the worse the rules become. <laughs> and I, I realize worse is kind of a very ambiguous phrase. Right. But what I mean by that is the more incoherent, inconsistent, and incomprehensible and hard to apply the, and, and loopholes there would be. Um, and the further they would stray from contemporary rules. That is, you would assume that over time there's kind of an evolution towards more perfection in terms of the rules. I actually believe, now that I've studied first revised fourth and fifth edition rules pretty carefully that that's not only not true but the opposite is true hmm. that is the first edition rules in many cases are actually the most superior set of rules as between the first five and the reason is because basically the ways in which spells resolve the general rule and i don't want to get too much in this but i'll just mention this and leave it the general rule under first edition rules was that spells resolve simultaneously. <laughs> now that sounds like a complete mess, right. but there were two exceptions. One exception was interrupts. Interrupts resolve first. The second exception was what was called the paradox exception, which is that if two things would resolve simultaneously and create a and create a paradox, like you play lightning bolt and I unsummon the target for the lightning bolt, one would put it to your hand, the other to the graveyard, the exception that was created in first edition alpha rules was that the player who played the spell last basically decides what happens. Now, that specific exception was broadened in third, revised edition rules into the LIFO rule and essentially became the main rule, LIFO. Mm -hmm. um, in fourth edition, they maintained LIFO, but they returned it the batch. But here's the problem. They changed the batch and they created a special rule that said damage dealing, all damage, is held until the end of the batch and resolves last. So in essence, first edition rules and revised edition rules, what we call what was called LIFO or the paradox exception, is actually the basis for the stack today. Mm -hmm. And you would think the bat the batch is, but fourth and fifth edition by changing the way the batch works, that, that LIFO works into the batch, and making damage happen last really is essentially the total opposite of how the rules work today. So fourth and fifth edition are actually far further removed from contemporary rules than first and revised edition. And, it, and because they made damage happen last, fourth edition actually had to create a damage prevention step, mm -hmm. a new step in order to deal with that. So in my article, I go into all this, but the and, and players can read this and decide whether they want to use that or not, right? If people really want to play under 4th edition, I think they should try it. But 4th edition is, I would say, much further from contemporary rules than 1st or revised edition. And I would not have anticipated that before I began this research. You know, so I'll just stop. Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember the exact timeline to the level of detail that you're describing it, but I can tell you that as a player at those times, I remember being very frustrated 
with how much the rules <laughs> kind of bent over backwards to address specifically damage and damage prevention. You know, right. the notion that we have right. today of damage prevention just being a little uh, conceptual shield that gets used up when the damage comes in is so unbelievably <laughs> superior to <laughs> all of the shenanigans that we had to go through back then. Because I remember cards like Healing Salve and Guardian Angel were just unbelievably complex and hard to understand when they didn't oh, need to be. Oh, God, yes. Exactly. You're absolutely right for that. Well, now that you've, you've mentioned it, let me just give you a very specific example. So if, if I have a script sprites and you cast Lightning Bolt on it, obviously the script sprites will die. But if I respond by casting script by by casting giant growth, um, the giant growth will resolve first, so the creature would survive, right? right? Right. And that's how that would happen under modern rules, as well as fourth edition, third edition, revised edition, and first edition rules. However, if the giant growth, if you if I cast giant growth first, and then you respond with lightning bolt. Under first edition, revised edition, and modern rules, the lightning bolt would resolve first, killing the script sprite, mm -hmm. right? right? That's not how that would resolve under fourth edition rules. Because the batch makes damage happen last, the script sprites will survive. Yeah. So it's totally the opposite of how things would work under alpha rules. <laughs> yeah. That was a dark time. <laughs> and and the fourth edition rules is the much larger set of rules too i mean it's much much longer and worse so it's hard to understand <laughs> this is i think i think whether you are you know kind of a, a teleological about life and history or whether you think that uh you know that uh things always evolve towards improvement or not my uh historiography of the ed edition of different rules editions teaches that progress is not linear <laughs> <laughs> nice nice well let's move on to the meat and potatoes of this episode and that is our discussion of the recent ban and restricted list updates here in march let's do it So first of all, why don't you set up the timing for these updates now? We've discussed this a little, but what's the spacing for these announcements? Well, Steve, since the last time we had a major discussion about the banned and restricted list, that particular uh, announcement, they've since added basically an additional cycle, doubling the number of announcements that they offer to us. So instead of just happening at set release, now there's an additional cycle that is Right. conceptually 180 degrees off of that between set releases, which is something that you exactly. and I have lobbied for for a long time. We have we have been discussing Baron List stuff since almost the inception of the show, if not the first episode. Right. And this show is, I don't know, five or six possible. Um, and in that time, the sequencing, the timing of announcement has shifted in a number of different mm -hmm. ways. So to be the case that essentially... BNR announced, well, at the very beginning of the year, they were just announced whenever there was no set schedule. But they eventually set up a release schedule where and this, the setup was on January 1st, uh, uh, March 1st, Feb uh, July 1st, 
in October or thereabouts, if, as long as it didn't weekend, they would have a BNR announced. And the, BN, the ban and restricted list change announced at that time would take effect at the end of the month, 20th, eventually. The yeah. 20th. It was like a 20 day change. Right. Wait, uh, a 20 day uh, waiting period or lame duck period. <laughs> <laughs> um, then a couple of weeks ago, they announced that they would make BNR list announcements, Ben restricted list announcements, with set, which we kind of sharply criticized for the reason we've said before, which is that we believe that Ben and restricted list interval, the optimal would actually be the opposite of that. Right. It would be the midpoint between sets. Well, with January's announcement, they said that they would be essentially following our approach. I think they realize that new sets actually make a significant change in magic meta. And therefore, and so BNR change. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it makes sense to try and sequence it in a way that can get, can kind of absorb the effect um, of either decision. And, um, and, but magic, but Aaron Forsyth, the head of R&D, was careful to say, we are going to make sure that this doesn't mean we double the number of bannings that occur. That is, there's some, there was some question as to, okay, you're doubling the number of announcements from four to eight. Does that also mean that you're doubling the number of potential bannings? So they're going to have to exercise, I think, a, a degree of right? right, which I think informed why they didn't do anything in standard. Um, so, so there's that. Um, but the point is that this is the then the mid, I guess. Uh, what was the name of the last set? Yeah, yeah we're between Ether Revolt, Ether Revolt and Amonkhet now. Exactly. Exactly. That's what's that's what's happening. Why don't you um, share? Go ahead. Well, so most of you listening to this probably know that there was no change in banner restricted list content for this particular announcement, and that's still a noteworthy and discussion worthy result in and of itself. For Vintage, we got a one paragraph summary of their their decision making process, and as Steve and I are want to do, we like to tease apart what it is they say in these kind of announcements, even when there aren't any changes. So I'm just going to quote what was posted here on the mothership. For Vintage, data is often difficult to gather because the sample size is so small. However, we have a large data set coming with the European Eternal Weekend Vintage Championship at the beginning of April. We'll be watching that tournament closely. For now, we are watching the results and continuing to listen to feedback from the community. So, Steve, we've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, essentially discrete statements here that we can analyze. Yeah. Yeah. Let me start. Um, let me start with something that I think, I think probably the most important aspect of that is that when when you see. So so when Wizards makes a non-announce, that is when they announce no changes, the range of interpretation varies. Mm. On the one hand, people might say well, that means that Wizards did an exhaustive analysis, concluded nothing happened. That an interesting conclusion or inference from that a decision, a non-decision. Um, but on the other hand, there's a large swath of people who infer Wizards is not paying attention to vintage, it doesn't care about vintage, or some variation thereof, right? right? This, I think, is a very important statement because it signals care about the format, we're paying attention to the format, we're listening to the community, but we're still making this now. So this is... I feel like there is, and this is the reason I wrote that article that on Turtle Central in February, which is public. There is a simmering level of discontent among some quarters of the vintage. We're going to parse that out and try and tease that apart. But if that's true, 
a non-announcement is likely, if not a certain, going to provoke the kind of response I just outlined, which is, oh, great, Wizards doesn't care about this. This is a very well-written statement, in my opinion, specifically a preemptive address that could say. Yes, I would say so. So that's my main observation. Um, but but let's let's tease out the other parts. Where would you like to start? Well, I find it very interesting, some things that are said explicitly and some things that are left unsaid here about the quality and size of the data that's available to them. Because yep. there are a very specific statement here about the sample size being small, which yep. says that... Well, what is, how do you interpret that? Yeah, it says to me <clears throat> that they are not putting over amounts of emphasis on small tournament results, specifically the daily results on Magic Online. There is a high number of vintage tournaments at their disposal, right, thanks to Magic Online. But the relatively low player counts are something that we have you know, discussed and, and weighed in the past. And this says to me that they're aware of the fact that even though they have a, a largish pool of data to pull from, the fact that there's small tournaments in these dailies means that they should not overweight them. I find that to be interesting. Okay, okay. So that is not at all what I thought you were <laughs> If you read the first sentence here, the first sentence is strange. I mean, at a surface level, and maybe I'm over-reading into it, but at a surface level, it makes complete sense. Data is often difficult to gather because the sample sizes are small. But here's the thing. Is data difficult to gather because sample sizes are small? Or is data difficult to gather because... The number of samples in the, the the number of samples that exists are small. So it's not that sample sizes are small; it's that the number of samples are. Small. I do, I do agree. Do you see yeah, the difference? I, I do, and I agree with you that this choice of words, this <laughs> the way they structured this, uh, probably doesn't uh, specifically reflect exactly what they were trying to get. The way I read this is similar to the challenges that you and I have with gathering data for our show which is simply that in order to get paper results, you have to scrounge. There's no one place you can go that's authoritative. There used to be. Well. I mean, Morphling.d used to have it. That's true. But that that goal in the community has been diffused a little bit such that no one site is authoritative on everything. We like tcdex.net, for example, but they don't receive every tournament through no fault of their own. And so... I interpret, attribute this to the combination of what it takes to evaluate paper and digital vintage and how paper vintage is simply difficult to wrangle. To your point, it's not about the size of a tournament, so to speak. I mean, it's not like it's more or less challenging to gather eight players than it is 16 players exactly. But I think the data is more work to locate than they're interested in doing for all the other formats. Yeah. Okay, I think I've, I think I'm following what you're saying, but you, you, you at one point and I had a discussion that wasn't on the show, phone I, where we talked about what kind of data set does Wizards theoretically have available. I mean, you seem to be in, at least in a private conversation of the view that Wizards should be able to have kind of back-end access to all of the Magic: The Gathering online vintage player, in, vintage game. That is. Your opinion that they should be able to have access back in access to all the premier events, dailies, and even player player to be able to kind of sift through and in, in do analysis and make. Mm -hmm. Now, do you still hold that belief? I do. That they should, and do you think they have that? I believe that the short answer is yes, but the long answer is they might not have good tools for accessing and analyzing. I mean, you and I. I 
I, you, you know yeah. that they recently, as of a couple of months back now, made a policy change where players can't watch replays for events that they weren't in, right? We right. had a discussion about data at that time as well. There's no reason to believe that Wizards doesn't still have access to all of those replays and all of the logs associated with a game. So I believe yeah, they have that they data, and- but they might not have good well, analytical tools for actually parsing it in to any good degree. If if I was if I was sitting on the DCI, I would demand that the Magic the Gathering team create good tools. And by that I mean I want to be able to track large scale do query in entire infrastructure and database Magic the Gathering that'll allow me to look at result certain matches. Like, you know, a tool that says this deck has workshop. I want to see its results against every other deck, daily daily events, queue, <laughs> and premiere events. Right. I mean it you you were much more an ad in our private conversation. I felt like you were much more adamant that that's something they should have or do have, and they can probably use very effectively. I was much more skeptical about. That. Well, I I, um, mean, I still feel that way. I believe they do have that data. I believe there's a chance that they're not maximizing it. In the case of vintage, it's <clears throat> it's probably not because the data is not available for vintage online. It's probably because their yeah. emphasis is not there. Right. So I would. I am speculating. I don't want to assume that they have good analytical tools. It might be that they have a, this great, enormous set of data and no good ways to parse it. You know, that's a possibility. Yeah. I don't want to make assumptions, but I believe the data is absolutely there. And I'm let's I assume share... that, let's assume they don't. If they don't, do you think that they should find a way to do it? And if they don't, it and if they aren't able to find a way to do it, how would you view that? Do you view that as negligent? Do you view that as irresponsible? Or do you view it as a kind of benign neglect or <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just, I'm curious, really, how would you normatively describe that? Uh, yeah, I would view that as, as irresponsible <laughs> to not use that data if you have it. I believe that they do have metrics that they're using probably on mass for things like standard and things where they're looking at how metagames evolve for non-eternal formats. There's, there's, so, there's so much to say yeah. here, but l- let's just stop here for a second, because what's distinctive about Vintage is that Magic Online's Vintage is part of the largest set available set of data. So so even if you have all that for standard, there may not be an internal need or really an impetus to use Magic Online to gather and assess data mm-hmm. in the kind of detailed back-end way possible because there are so many other sources of standard data. I mean, you can use PTQs, you can use Pro Tour results, you know, stuff like that, that you just, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, you're, you're totally right. And... um I mean, I don't know how to, I don't know how to weigh the utility that those examples and others that you're, you're totally right are out there. I don't know how to weigh the utility of those versus what they've got on Magic Online. Because standard dailies are not any more or less superior in terms of an analytical tool than vintage dailies are, right? You're going to defer to a pro no, tour no, and, I, a, and a hundred, one or two hundred no. person event. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that the, the vintage dailies are far more important as the because we don't have paper and well, I think that's a look. I think that's a dangerous precedent, and I see why you would say that. But just because there's a lack of other data doesn't mean that you can overweight uh, these I, these eight to sixteen person I, events every day. I I agree I agree with yeah. you I agree with you, but I think there's a lot of what I was saying is so let's disaggregate dailies, two person queues, even three queues, yeah. and and premier events. But you can also aggregate it and get a very big, very very large. Yep. Let, let's just stop. The first two sentences of this explanation to me are odd. From a statistical perspective, by no means am I kind of a you know a PhD in statistics. I, I do I deal with a lot of large data sets. I have a kind of supervise and work with a team of folks who do data analytics. But 
the phrasing here is is ah. It's a, he says the sample size is small. A sample is a particular data piece of datum within a, a a larger data set. You know, so if you are sampling something from my perspective, each data point would be the sample. So not the overall set data set. So the phrasing, I've already made the point. He says the data is often difficult to gather because the sample size is so small. I don't really know what he means by that. But the second set is equally puzzling because he's because they say, however, we have a large data set coming from Eternal European Eternal Weekend Vintage Championship at the beginning of April. In my opinion, they're conflating or actually more precisely, they're confusing the term sample they're confusing the term sample and data data set. I think they're using them in ways opposite to how I would do you see what I'm saying? I do, and I think there is some unspecific language going. But the way I interpret it is is specifically down to the difference between uh, the size of a daily and the size of a, uh, a championship to term. That's how I view that. So sample size, meaning you can yeah, but, get a lot of data yeah, but, uh, from the dailies each month, but you have to take yeah, it in 8 it, to 12 person chunks. But in our metagame reports, the vintage championships are one data point. Yeah. One's one data point. Not a, they're not a large data set. So I don't know what he means by large data set. I mean, a tournament with a large he, number of say, players, naturally. <laughs> that's not, but that's not a data set. That's not well, a data it is. set. A, data a number set. of matches, Only, right? Yeah, but, yeah, but see, to my knowledge, and I believe this is true, no one from Wizard has ever taken Vintage Championship data set. That is, they don't even get all the deck lists. They get the top eight deck lists. In order to actually make it a data set where you can, where you can actually sift through all the results, the metagame breakdown, you'd have to have a metagame well, breakdown. You'd have to be able to code in the way that we've done. I mean, you're laughing, but it depends on your but, goals, right? No, but what I'm saying is, it's not a large data set unless you have a complete metagame breakdown. That it's not a large data set at all. It's a one data point sample. That's all it is. If all you have is topic deck list, and I've watched. Since for years ago, right? When has Wizard, when have the hosts or the TOs for Vintage Champion sent Wizards the, t- the deck list? Never. Yeah. The only time they've ever, they published the top eight deck list, that's all they've got. I remember because eight, nine years ago, the TO lost all the rest of the deck lists, and individual community members have done the hard work of getting the deck lists from the TOs and publishing them. In almost every year since, sometimes it's been Eternal Central. One time it might have been me. Years, you know. Anyway, it's not, you know. Last year, I think it was Ryan Eberhard and Matthew Murray. I, I get, I get so, what you're saying. But it's not, it's not a data set. It's not a data set. If you don't have a metagame breakdown, then you can't actually look and see at how, say, workshops did against Gush or against Combo well, that's, or Dread. I see you're, so you're, 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 I agree with you. It's not a data set. It's hold on, a data. Hold, hold, hold on, I got you. The point is, my point is, is that it depends on your goals, right? If you want to have a metagame picture, then yeah, you'd have to have the whole metagame. But that's not to say that they're even doing that with dailies, right? I don't know if they're doing a whole metagame analysis for every daily. I don't know if they're looking at the 03 and 04 decks for each daily. They're probably not. So, you know, their approach to vintage could very well be entirely divorced from win rates. Could be entirely just aggregate 3-1 and 4-0 decks. We don't know what their methodology is here, but if yeah, you take... Kevin, it, but but if I'm you take it doesn't a, matter. It does matter. It doesn't matter. matter. Because methodology is everything in this kind of analysis. If you take, no, for example, what, but, the important metric is how many matches did this, 
that were played per person in an event, and you say that yeah. three is too small, or you know, like in a daily, or four is too small, but eight starts to be a, a large enough quote unquote sample size, then that speaks to their methodology, right? An eight round or a nine round yeah, event but, is but Kevo, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is it does not matter what your goal is. It doesn't matter what your methodology is. It, it does you could articulate ten different goals. Yep. And if whatever those goals, any one of those ten goals, it's impossible to actually achieve any of those goals if you do not have a metagame break. So for example, if your goal is to see what is the win percentage of workshop in the event, you cannot achieve that goal unless you have a metagame breakdown. Right. Or if your goal is to see um, how how a small subset of players playing um, who, who, let's say, had a, a winning record did, like, let's say you wanted to see how the top third of Gush players did against Dread. You could not, you could not do that unless you had a metagame breakdown. All of them are dependent upon having a metagame break. But there are so certain. You, doesn't matter what your goal it is. It does matter. I don't think Steve, there's anything you there can are, do. I don't think there are clearly, there are clearly plenty of goals that can be uh, met and analyzed with just with top just, eight data. You know, what decks are winning events, for example, doesn't require a whole metagame. What yeah. decks are top eighting? That might not be a great metric, yeah, yeah. but you can do it with only top yeah. eight data. Uh, I, I was obviously saying, aside from aside from just like looking at top eight data, there's no goal that you, there's nothing that I would say quali qualifies or counts as a large data set. Uh, okay. If you, all you have is the top eight deck. That's fine. It, it's not a large data set. What it is, what it is, it's a, from my perspective, it is a particular sample that is based upon a large number of players. Mm -hmm. Therefore is a more reliable. Yeah. That's what I would say. Reliable. And, and I think but that speaks to the, data I, I think that speaks to the unspecific language they're using. But these aren't people, these guys not people who are uh, use statistics generally in an imprecise way, I would assume. So well, they're certainly I'm just using the language of it in, uh, in, you know, unspecifically here. Well, that's my observation. Yeah. It's confusing because if they view, if they view the Eternal Weekend as a large data set, that would imply that they have a metagame breakdown, which I don't believe. Well, they could so have taken it from Eternal Central for the last two or three years, right? Uh... Yes, except even the last data set, the last breakdown was so specific because every single deck list was public mm -hmm. and including the result. In the past, I'm not even sure if Wizards gets the result, the the metagame, uh, the DCI reporter. <laughs> and even if they do, even what even if they do, yeah. even if they do, they would have to code it. That means someone would have to actually take the mm -hmm. time to sit down, get the DCI recorder results, and then code all those results with the deck deck break, you know, whatever the archetype yeah. or even the specific. That is no small amount of labor. And we don't it's we not. don't have evidence of them doing that. And nothing not. that they have yep. said in the past suggests that they do do that. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. Well, so I would prefer they just said something like, for vintage, data is often hard to gather because, not the sample size, but because both, I would say, be, and also the idea of something difficult to gather, it's not difficult to gather things in sample size. <laughs> if I were doing, I, I mean, if I were doing, you know, let's say a, a, a a poll of polls mm -hmm. after the last presidential election. You don't say the data is hard to gather because the poll sizes are small. You say the date, da da you, you don't, right? I think I we've mean, made our point. It's, okay. All right. <laughs> the last All sentence right. here, for now, we are watching the results and continuing to listen to feedback from the community. So yeah. that last bit is interesting. What, I, already, I already opined on that, which I think it signals that we are both, we're paying attention to the format, but we also are listening. Yeah. So, one thing that I think my sense of how the DCI sometimes approaches it, approaches vintage, is that 
Look, I think one of the best periods in vintage was the five years in which they didn't restrict anything. <laughs> I'm not saying the restrictions in the last couple of years has, has, haven't been warranted, at least some, most. But um, my sense is that they are looking as a threshold inquiry. They're looking to see whether there is consensus in the community. And one of the things I was putting out in February is that getting, even if there is consensus that something should need to be, there is incredibly divergent opinions about what that should be. And I want to delve into that. But but let's let's stick with the first matter, which I think is the thresholding. Someone posted a poll in January on the manager. I thought was very – I wanted to share it. Kevin, would you like to share it? No, you go ahead. So the January 9th, after the uh, announcement uh, time to coincide with the 8th of room, someone named Ugular on the Mediterranean posted this question. No changes to the restricted list. Right or wrong decision by, by the was Option one, yes, right decision. Option no, a change restricted So – Listen to us right now, you might wonder, what were the poll results? Well, and you can think in your mind how you would vote. You have thought that that was no change was correct, needed. There were 85 votes. 51 votes thought that no change was the right decision, and 34 votes thought no, a change was needed. The specific percentage breakdown is 60 to 40. That is, 60% of the community thought that this was the right decision. 40% thought a change was needed. Now, presumably, among that 40%, there was a tremendous degree of variation in what should happen. I mean, I know I've heard people like Brian Kelly say he thinks, you know, in the past, tons of cards should be restricted, like Taxium Probe, Gush, you know, and other cards beside. There may be some people who feel like just Gush should be, or some people who thought just Paradoxical Ox, or just Thorn of Amethyst, or even people who think like Workshop. Um, and, and by the way, the thought that a change was needed, some people might think that something should have been unrestricted, nothing. So there may be a couple of votes in there for that. Mm-hmm. So just because someone says they thought change was needed doesn't mean that. So. The question, though, is if this poll was taken today, how would people vote? (laughs) Kevin? Well, so you posted this same poll, and by same, I mean the exact same language, (laughs) Um, (laughs) capitalization and all. You posted this same poll to our show's Twitter account earlier today, and the results, we have almost as many results in at this point. We've got 73 votes as of recording at this very moment. <clears throat> and the percentage breakdown is 58 to 42. We're within 2 to 4% <clears throat> of that same January sensation. Now, this is on Twitter and not in the Manadrain, so there's a slightly different community at play here, but there's a lot of overlap. Right. So two percentage points increase so far uh, in, in terms of the people who think something should have changed. If there really needs to be consensus on something needing to happen, I think we are now at a point where there is clearly a, a strong supermajority almost 60% feel nothing should have happened, which to me says it was the right thing. But I do want to take serious complaints. Pat, do that. Kevin, any thoughts or reactions polls so far? Just that it's not anything new to you and I and many others in the community to have this general sense of unrest, right? I mean, these right. conversations come up in numerous contexts and tournament results and banner restricted, of course. But when new cards are printed, I mean, almost every context in the social community for vintage, there's always this door open to say what you don't like about the format right now. It's been that way for quite a while. Quite a while since the format's inception. I know, but I feel like people been complaining. I, I agree, but I also feel like the noise level has been high. But I mean, it, it, there we know we've touched on these. There's a lot of cultural causes, right? There are a lot. People have pet decks that come and go in terms of their strengths, you know. And if you try and take your own biases out of the situation, you'll be left with nothing left. So the simple truth is that a lot of people view what they think is a healthy vintage metagame differently than others, 
and they think what's a healthy deck differently than others. And these things aren't ever going to change. You know, we're never going to reach to true consensus over the fact that this is a great vintage format, no matter what it looks like. Yep, totally agree. I mean, people have fundamentally different views of what should or should not be restricted. I remember not five years ago, Brian DeMars was writing about how he thought a ton of cards should be restricted. He thought, what was it? Bazaar should be restricted. Yeah. Uh, Oath of Druid. You know, most most of the cards. staples at that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you were to, as you alluded to, if you were to um, <clears throat> run a more scientific poll as a subset of these two polls yeah. we just discussed to tease out yeah. what people think, the results for the wouldn't something should be done uh, wing of the results would be many massively massively diverse i think is the best way to put it yes yeah people would want one card two cards three cards they'd want on restrictions they'd want just you know different decks <laughs> you can't even get people to agree about which decks are bad or you know are wrong so to speak or which decks need to be fought there's still some people hanging out there in that 40 some percent that thinks workshops is too good right so you can't even get people who are ostensibly on the same side of a of this particular position to agree on what's really wrong and not that you should be able to. That's I, I don't mean to say that these people are all um, mistaken collectively, just that there is no consensus about what vintage should be. And as such, as times go and things stay the same or they change dramatically, either way, someone gets upset you know, about what's going on at the moment. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think you know the only way you can actually get at what you were just saying is if you actually have a staged poll that is a poll that has multiple questions mm -hmm. because you can't. The, you can't ask, you know, a diversity of questions to really get the overall picture right. in in one one stage of a poll, so a one step poll. So um, maybe down the road someone should create a, a nice kind of more, even more scientific survey. It wouldn't be that difficult to do. You just have to put some real thought in. Um, and you know what, surveys are an instrument that we really don't haven't used a lot of historic format, but maybe we should. I mean, survey data is used for a reason in political science. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to point out, Kevin, which is that they acknowledge that for vintage da data is often difficult to gather, yet they still seem to be on the warpath to make it more difficult for us to get data. You already pointed out that um, that the, the community, A, the community does the lion's share of the labor in terms of developing the data sets, right. and B, um, there's been some hints from Lee Sharp that they want to actually report fewer daily. So if they know that data is a problem for vintage, why even make it more difficult on us when the community is actually doing the work, right? <laughs> Isn't that... Well, I I can't... I'm not entirely sure if their policy even has anything to do with Vintage. It might. But it was it my understanding that the policy... Because of standard well, the, okay, being but, yeah. Well, so there's my point. So it sounds like then that Vintage is just being swept in, you know, exactly. baby out with the bathwater style with standards problem in that respect. And I... I mean, if I know you and I wish that they would decouple that issue, exactly. right? Because treat, there's treat no reason to punish, right. right? There's no reason to punish us uh, the same as, as those other formats are, you know, demonstrating issues that are totally different. Well, so where should we go from here, Steve, in terms of teasing well, out so let's, the outcome from this? Well, let's talk about, let's talk about some of the specific cards that people have brought up as candidates for restriction. And um, now let's start with some of the interesting, unusual ones. So. Uh, Gush has gotten a lot of attention. Paradoxical Outcome has gotten a lot of attention. We could talk about both. Yep. Um, I've mentioned or mock context of both. But perhaps the most interesting we talked about in itself are Gitaxin Probe, which, speaking of diversity of opinion, uh, Rodrigo Torres is the one really pushed <laughs> by a desire to see, to see Gitaxin specifically because of how it plays in the format. 
Um, also, mentor has been discussed. But let's start with mental misstep and attack. Yeah, okay. <laughs> start there. Steve, I think it's interesting to group probe and mental misstep together because of the Phyrexian mana and because I'm one of those people who is not overly bothered by the way these cards impact vintage. I acknowledge the serious systemic impacts, especially misstep, but I'm also one of those people who really still has a sour taste in their mouth just from a design and development standpoint. I really feel like Phyrexian mana was a bad thing for magic as a whole because it does too many things to break the color wheel as well as the costing system in the game. And so I think that part of the reason, though not the only reason, but part of the reason why these two cards see so much play is their brutal efficiency and the fact that you can... I mean, people are playing Mental Misstep in... I mean, I have seen Mental Misstep in nearly every archetype in Vintage. Now, granted, it's not a mainstay in every one of them, but if you can play it in Mentor and Storm and dredge, then that's an indicator from a design standpoint, I think that something is wrong. <laughs> now that is, uh, you don't have to share that perspective of mine. I'm not suggesting that that uh, should be everyone's position, but I do feel like it bears on one's perception of a card's value in the format if you already think it was a mistake and shouldn't have been made. I think that it's easier to criticize a card and say, you know what, we should get rid of this because it shouldn't have ever existed in the first place <laughs> when right. when I don't believe that approach is a real, true, valid approach to ban well, restricted list policy. I should have asked you, how would you have voted? How do you vote in the poll if you did vote? Uh, I vote no changes. In other words, you thought it was the right decision. You're the I yes. do. Yeah. I do. Um, so you just gave a kind of litany of reasons to be yeah. concerned. So you... One of the things you pointed out was you feel like Gitaxi, uh, Phyrexian mana breaks the color wheel. I actually think that is part of the upside of it, that Mental Misstep can be played in non-blue decks. Like, let's just say Dredge is a non-blue deck, or a Workshop sideboard, or White yeah. Eldrazi sideboard. Yeah. Is actually part of the upside, or the pro side of the ledger, <laughs> for these cards. Now, that doesn't mean that's where they mostly see play, but I think that mental misstep to me is a really interesting case. So I, I don't know whether we should toggle bit back and forth or just stick to one. <laughs> we did a whole damn show on Gitaxian Pro. Yeah. So, you know, our opinions on that are well developed. I don't think either one of us has really changed. I do think we both think that Gitaxian Probe is especially abusive with Monastery Mentor. Both of us yeah, think really. that is one of <laughs> mentor has exacerbated Gitaxian probes <laughs> problems, if you will. Um, but um, mental misstep, just t let's take, so what I think we should do is we should say, even though neither one of us, I think you and I are both in generally in accord and that we'd like to see a lot fewer restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, but let's just take the arguments for and against restricting both of these cards. Okay. Let's just develop as far as we can, acknowledging that we are not in the pro column. Let's yeah. just develop it as far as we can. So um, which one would you like to start with? Let's start with Probe. Okay. Well, Rodrigo Torres has made the, the argument 
probably as, effect, as effectively as anyone. So I'll just represent what he said. In essence, he feels that having perfect or near perfect information is bad for the game, and therefore at such a low cost. And therefore, from a gameplay and construction and interaction perspective, Gitaxian Probe is bad for the game. Now, that is not the kind of framework in which we generally operate when considering restrictions and vintage, but I can't say it's an illegitimate framework either. You know, there's not one way to analyze or to understand bases for restriction. Um, is there anything I else do that think, people offer for I, its restriction besides its I, abuse with I mentors? do think that it's worth noting, though, that that's a departure from the metagame and data-based approach that you and I have that's, promoted that's what I, all that's along. That's what I just said. I just said it's an untraditional approach, but you just, okay. you just articulated yeah. that more specifically than I would have. Okay, I, I, I just want to be clear on that. Be, because you said that you didn't think it's unreasonable. I, I'm sorry, I'm already paraphrasing you. I'm sorry. Yeah. You said you don't think it's an unreasonable position. But it's non-traditional. It's not. A, it's, it's certainly not, non-traditional. It's not, I, not a traditional basis for restriction, which is the more metagame empirical right. approach. Right. But, it's a g game we don't generally restrict cards for gameplay problems in vintage. <laughs> it's um, yeah. It kind of skirts the line between the unfun uh, position, it does. doesn't it? It is. It is an unfun. It, it's a... The unfun. So, there's really only two grounds for restriction in the format. One, and in fact, there's only really one ground: unfun. <laughs> it depends on how you unpack unfun. <laughs> I have argued that the there is an empirical, empirically, basically that people don't want to be compelled into playing one deck, and so if you had a deck that dominates, and by I mean dominate, I mean wins every tournament, wins foros every daily. Uh, and com composes, let's just say for an extreme example, 100% of top eights, there is no other deck to play in the format. And over time it does that. You are in a one deck format. Yeah. And that format is unfun because the essence of fun, as I believe it, is meaningful choice. That people want to have choice. And that happens, there's a temporal element to that. Games that are fun are games that you replay and they aren't the same. There's re replay value speaks to that every game is different or there are unique things that happen that make it interesting. If every game you play, a lot of games are boring because they're, they have no replay value. You know, like checkers and tic-tac-toe are solved fairly quickly. They're not really deep games for that reason. Um, so, but under unfun, I think gameplay is a legitimate argument. Um, and that's what has, that's how I understand Rodrigo's point of view. Uh, do you, think that that's a fair representation of that argument or is there more to it i think there's also a little bit of game design element to it as well i mean it <clears throat> conceptually i think rodrigo's putting in that from that perspective putting emphasis on what is important to him in magic and he's expressing that in one way that what's important to him is the imperfect information right so right. um i think well we're all talking about variant variations of fun, right? Of course, what's yeah. important to him is just what's fun to him is another way to put that. I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but he's lamenting the fact that you're eliminating an element of what he considers valuable to the experience, and that is the imperfect information. And I think there's also an extension of that by which it can mean that some games end in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. I... I feel like Probe represents a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? We've mentioned here Rodrigo's position specifically with regard to information, but that's not the only complaint I've heard, right? I mean, some people just straight up don't like the fact that it's so easy to make Probe work with Monastery Mentor, as you already alluded to. They amplify each other's power. and But it's, it's a little bit more than that, though, just because, <laughs> again, this is, I think, 
overlapping with just game design. And that is like misstep probe can go in so many different decks. And I I feel like, you know, we have, as you said, a whole show talking about Hmm. should we even be playing this card? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the simple truth is, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a solved issue yet. It has become more popular. And I think that mentor decks have pushed each other to be more powerful and streamlined of late. Yeah, I mean, but it's not always going to be that way. Let me intervene on that. Yeah, I mean, the the way you win the mentor mirror is generally mentoring harder than your probe is one of the best cards to help you do that. Right. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of decks. There's there's two. Let's say I'll call them broad class of decks that really abuse well. The first is combo. Knowing what your opponent has and being able to choose the optimal path. Mm-hmm. is actually incredibly valuable. Do I go for it now or do I not? May be the difference between winning or losing. Right. You know, like when you have a narrow window of opportunity and you can exploit it, that's a big deal. The second is what I'll call Brian Kelly decks, which are decks that have lots of routes, lots of pathways to victory. And it's not that you need to know whether to go for it or not, but Probe can tell you the best route to take because because those decks are so circu- circuitous and non-linear. That lots is, of, lots of card selection. Lots of card selection, preordain, Dak, Jace, all that kind of stuff. And they can they can take many different paths to the ultimate endgame. And those paths are informed deeply by what Probe reveals. I think that those are the decks, those three decks, mentor decks included, is where Probe is most abusive. So the question is, is that really a bad thing? On the other side of the ledger, I actually consider that to be a good thing. I like the fact that Probe helps combo decks. In particular, Dark Petition is particularly important with Probe because Dark Petition requires two instants or sorceries in the graveyard to get the benefit. I forget what that mechanic is called. Spell Mastery. Spell Mastery. But Probe is the one that allows you to basically on turn two go Dark Ritual off of a Mox in another land and play Dark Petition and be able to get Necro. Without Probe, you're going to need another cantrip or something else there. So... I think Probe is actually an important role in Vintage right now, and I would not like to see it go away. I also like how Probe can be used with cards like Meddling Mage or whatever to make decisions, right? Like you can Probe with Cabal Therapy is actually really cool, and I like that. (laughs) I I happen to like that. I happen to think that Probe has has a lot of value in the format, and, and it comes with a cost. I don't think it's an automatic inclusion. I mean, you and I both, again, for, for the third time we did a full show talking about what those costs are. But um, I think I, I agree that Probe is interesting and has value in all of those diverse ways that it helps different decks. I feel like people who, a lot of people who dislike it don't believe the cost is high enough. They believe it is too much of a, just a given that you can throw your probes into whatever deck and they're making any deck that has them better within reason. I mean, shops don't play Probe, but so many other decks do and i just feel like i don't know i feel like it's not even from a game design standpoint even but just from a cost benefit analysis some people feel like deck construction should be harder than that <laughs> right yep, yep i mean we went for years years uh, you know playing cards that aren't nearly that efficient you know we got brainstorm restricted <laughs> and brainstorm is dang good don't get me wrong but it's not even that efficient as probe is right And so there are, again, I think this goes down to people's perceptions of what they think a format even should be. And one of those things is you should have to pay some mana for your spells. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that speaks to misstep probe and gush in this kind of The thing is, I mean, people listen to our podcast on probe. I believe that the opportunity cost of probe 
is the cost of probe. That is the cost of putting it in your deck over something else that's better. That's the true cost of probe. And I think that that is actually the reason I generally don't play probe is I I don't think it's usually optimal card. But there are other people who believe the polar opposite of that, right? They believe that if you get a chance to play with 56 cards, then opportunity cost is was not lost i played four street race in the magic invitational vintage deck which was a mistake (laughs) so you don't need to i don't need to be persuaded of the value of playing a 56 card deck i believe that as a matter of course what i'm saying is that in the particular decks in which i considered probe i think that the opportunity cost is too high and i and but if i was playing a kind of real I mean look I played four probe in my vintage championship deck last year because I was playing an aggro mentor deck right our paradoxical mentor deck where yeah. you really want to mentor hard I was playing I played probe in dark petition storm what I haven't played probe is in control gush decks where mm-hmm. I don't think it's optimal but you know whatever I mean I played Jeskai mentor last March at, at the Asian vintage championship to a third place finish where I played zero probe because I felt like I wanted to have a more of a control role, and I don't think probe is optimal in the control role. I think yeah. I think anyway. So we don't need to belabor it. So <laughs> I, I I think that the I understand how people might be concerned about probe, but I really like what it does for dark petition. I like what it does for storm decks. I like what it does. I, what it does in mentor is not great, but <laughs> that's the exception. Um, Unfortunately, that is by and large where it is represented in the metagame today. True. 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 Yeah. I mean, dark petition storm is basically not a thing since paradoxical well, outcome i i there have been a couple dark petition storms in the daily we'll get to that later well yeah still if you, if you were to pull and aggregate all of the representations of probe right it's probably overlapping 75 80 percent with the card monastery mentor right yep these other usage that you're talking about are valid and simply small potatoes wait how much what percentage is it 70 80 percent I think 70 or 80% of the probes are paired with mentors. I would days. probably say 60% because I think probe shows up in a lot of other decks, but that's okay. Okay, fair enough. Well, so, so let's, let's turn to mentors. I don't right? think we can. I mean, are there, are there other objections to probe do you think we haven't teased out here? I don't think. I, to my knowledge, that's the universe of consideration. Okay. I, I can't think of another popular uh, opinion against probe at the moment. I, I don't even know if probe. Clipping, uh, restricting probe would address the mentor deck very much at all. Do you? Uh, no, I don't think it would. I mean, it might it might in combination with something else, but anyway. So in let's combination, go to the combination definitely, but uh, by itself, no. I mean, yeah. people not even people are yeah. even always playing I, four probes. I would right? pre- I would prefer to play one than four. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut two probes from your deck and put yeah. in some other thing. I mean, no, it's not gonna. And that's that's going to be a common refrain from a lot of these examples we've got. In, in a lot of cases vis-a-vis mentor is that True. many yeah. of the changes would be very yeah. incremental changes agreed agreed so let's turn to mental misstep then you have some very strong opinions on this why don't you articulate them oh geez where to begin i mean uh, so i've already talked about the whole design mistake concept i, I feel that way but i also don't feel like that that's a basis for uh, a restriction i do feel like that a popular opinion about misstep is that it is it's like an arms race that you simply must play them. And so there's an <laughs> element of sameness. There's an element of lack of meaningful choice, as you've discussed as a metric in terms of deck construction. And I also feel like there's some people who simply object to what games are like that involve mental missteps. Um, but one of the things that we all know would happen if mental misstep was restricted is that it 
it would have, I think, unintended consequences on some of the reasons why certain people, and I think a large portion of people cite as, you know, what they don't like about what it's done to the metagame. Because I'm of the opinion that if mental misstep gets restricted, then workshops get even worse. And some we pe- have more blue mirrors. I've heard some people say that if mental misstep gets restricted. Yeah, exactly. That the workshops gets even worse. Be- and the theory then is because misstep like Flusterstorm is part of the blue arms race. Yeah. And if it's restricted, then it makes more space for blue decks to fight workshops as opposed to each other. Well, I'm not, it, yeah, I'm I mean, not sure I'm persuaded by that. I'm not sure I'm persuaded by that, but go the, ahead. The, yeah. It's it's important to recognize that's just my theory and opinion. The, yeah. system, the systemic impacts of restricted mental misstep are large and they affect every deck yes. in yes. every matchup. And yes. it's very difficult to predict. But it's pretty clear that when you restrict the best anti-one-mana counter that other one-mana cards get better, right? Yeah. Now, yes. which cards those are is <laughs> obviously up for debate. So, but cards like Spell Pierce and Pyroblast, you know, they all benefit. So in the pro column for restriction, here are the arguments as I understand them. First, it's heavily played. Well, yes, it's heavily, so is Force of Will. But why yeah. mental misstep over Force of Will, let's say? Okay. I think the argument would be that misstep is unique in that it only it trades one for one and therefore is an absurd temp generator of tempo. Whereas Force of Will, even though it generates tempo, trades two for one. Yeah. And so that would be the rationale for restricting misstep instead of force of will. Um, uh, so I think, and then I think the overall general reason for restricting it would be that it creates games where one player snowballs the other. That is, it's just a ridiculous tempo card. I think that's an interesting argument and a fairly legitimate one. Um, I could see that like in Delver, just, you know, misstepping, having more missteps than your opponent usually just resulted in a win in the Delver mirror in particular. Um, I think those are the main arguments for its restriction. That is some combination of the kind of tempo and gameplay it generates and B, its kind of ubiquitousness or ubiquity. Um, I think that would be the general pro arguments. Um, You could also say that this is maybe a, a lesser argument, that its restriction would open up space for more cards to see play. Um, I think there's no question of that. So that, yeah. like, if it's restricted, suddenly Spell Pierce, I think, becomes a much better card again. Yeah. Um, Duress becomes much better. Dark Ritual becomes much better. Um, in fact, I think that might be one of the most interesting arguments of all. If you restrict Misstep, and I put a little bit of thought into this, a couple things happen. One, one of the reasons, I think one of the great mysteries of Vintage of the last couple of years, Kevin, is how Merchant Scroll has disappeared. You and I lived through a period where Merchant Scroll was literally one of the most broken cards in the format, unrestricted cards in the format. I mean, it was just the most absurd card <laughs> because yeah. it could get Force and Ancestral and then get you gifts, gifting or gushing or whatever. Um, it was just the, just everyone knew it, that everyone who played like basically from 2006 to 2008 knew that Scroll was like literally like the best unrestricted card <laughs> in the format. <laughs> and Okay. Or one of, right? And now it sees almost no play. And the similar thing has happened to cards like Mystical Tutor and Vampiric Tutor. Even where people, decks can use them, they generally don't. The question is why. And I think a big part of the answer is that one of the large, let's say, plurality of targets with those cards is Ancestral Recall. And the value of either investing two mana to find Ancestral or uh, a card disadvantage from a top deck tutor is dramatically undermined when your opponent can just throw a misstep at it and completely negate your effort. Right. 
I think misstep has driven those cards out of the from the format. So I would theorize that if mis, if misstep were restricted, we would see the return of Scroll, Mystical Tutor, and Vampiric Tutor at getting Ancestral back into the format. Now that's a double-sided blade. On the one hand, you could say that's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing that the format no longer resolves around Ancestral to the same degree. On the other hand, maybe it's not such a bad thing that we have those cards coming back. Maybe if those cards come back, then we see Yogg Will again and things like that, because then you're incentive to build it around Yogg Will by building your graveyard with those tutors, right? I, all would, I would also argue that restricting mental misstep would have a, for that reason, have a huge positive impact. I believe that if mental misstep were re- restricted, we would see a lot more gush decks playing the gush bond engine again for two reasons. One, misstep can't just be thrown in front of a fast bond. Um, the tutor, the top deck tutor decks with Gush would be playing um, Yog Will and Ancestral for Ancestral, and those decks would be, you know, green, black, blue, and another color. And I think those decks would come back. And the last thing I think would happen if you restricted Mental Misstep is that you would see Misdirection coming back again and Spell Pierce, but in particular Misdirection. Misdirection has completely disappeared from the format. Right. I, pl- I played with Misdirection a lot. Even in the mental misstep era, because, for example, in the Delver Mirror, you wanted to be able, you wanted to misdirect a bolt or a plow from your pyromancer to their pyromancer. That was a game-winning play. But the reason that most people stopped doing that is because if you bolt me, Kevin, and I respond with misdirection, pitching a card, and you just misstep your own bolt, you've essentially traded nothing for nothing, right? I mean, yeah. you've, you, you've, it's you're a two even. For two. It's a two for two. But it's virtually better than that because your misstep was so much more valuable than that misdirection was going to be. Exactly, exactly. So I think if misstep were restricted, we would see misdirection back in the format. So that's my sense of what would happen. So I think there's actually an interesting case to be made for restricting misstep, but I want to hear your thoughts. I think that, I mean... (laughs) That's all the pro column. What's the con argument? I think the con column is is that card diversity is not one of the traditional metrics for uh, ban and restricted decision when deck diversity has been such a powerful driver all this time. And all the discussion that you just made about cards that do legitimately get better in a one misstep environment, do you think that changes the metagame? Do you think, are we just playing mentor with with Merchant Scroll and Misdirection and Mystical Tutor in three of those slots, because I think that's really the issue. If I, I grant that you know many non-misstep cards become more playable, but I don't grant that that just solves what people don't like about Mentor matchups. <clears throat> you know, maybe because of no missteps, then the plows become that much more valuable in a Mentor exactly. matchup. Exactly. That's, so that's, that's a pro column, though. That's a good well, reason to restrict maybe it. Not, though. Maybe not, though. Maybe for some people, it's just going to be a complaint of, well, I played Mentor, but he had Plow, and I couldn't stop it. And then next turn, he played Mentor, and I didn't have Plow. You know, I mean, people will complain about any any possible given combination of results if it happens enough. Do you, are so you I'm comfortable? Not are you personally I'm not com- convinced that the all of the value judgments you just made about cards being more playable results in a metagame that people are going to like more, <laughs> right? Are you comfortable at all? with any restriction that isn't based on prevalence data? Uh, are you, are yes, you just fundamental? But, but I consider the threshold to be much higher. Okay. And, what, and also, give, well, uh, sorry, I was, I was thinking about your other point about other things in the, in the, the con column for 
restricting mental misstep. And that part of that too is that the omnipresence of mental misstep also does make other cards more playable, right? Snapcaster Mage is a good example. Snapcaster is a good card, but it's really good with mental missteps around, especially when there's an arms race. And there are there are other decks, you know, that have been built around uh, sidestepping the mental misstep arms race too. You know, the first time I'm thinking of was two years ago, Solly built a, a Jeskai control deck that had basically Ancestral and Brainstorm, I think, were the only one drops in it. And it was interesting deck construction standpoint based around stranding your opponent's missteps and making them bad cards. And I don't have a I don't have a full comprehensive list off the top of my head because Snapcaster was the first and obvious one to me. But other cards like Flusterstorm. Flusterstorm is better in a three and four misstep environment, right? Because it's a one drop counterspell that can't just be misstep. So I don't think it's a zero sum game, right? It's not just like the format just becomes more diverse when you get rid of missteps. Other cards are going to have to go by the wayside naturally, and it's it's a really really complex system. And I don't. I don't think we have any guarantees that the results are just, you know, net positive. Everyone becomes happy with one misstep. I think that's far from the truth and far from a given. I'm trying to figure out how to how to tease apart and respond to the elements that you've laid out. I think the the scenario that I keep coming back to is the one involving mentor and plow. I think anything that makes it harder to remove a mentor is potentially problematic. <laughs> and I at least with that with that level of ease. I mean, you know, mentor in a double misstep hand is like, you know, really hard to deal with and is ridiculous tempo. People can throw the, the missteps in front of a pro and just yeah. tempo out. I think, I think there's, a, I, I think that it's, so here, here's the question. Would restricting mental misstep make mentor less of a menace? That's the question. Not gush decks, but mentor itself. Yeah. And I think the answer to that question is probably yes. I think, yeah. But the question is how much? And also, I mean, there are just so many systemic, um, you know, changes that would come into play. For example, perhaps without four missteps, your Cobble Therapy decks become much more better, right? Maybe yeah. Esper Mentor becomes the dominant mentor list because now, <laughs> and then people are like, oh, great, you know, he's got four probes and four therapies and he just drew more of them. I couldn't stop them. Because unless you, I mean, Forcible is terrible at yeah, fighting you, that, right? If you restrict misstep and probe together, then you've dealt with that. But yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but let's let's not talk about doubling up. That's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> my, my point is simply that misstep is also guarding against certain things that aren't being played in Mentor right now. And it could be that those things upset people That's even fair. more. I mean, That's it could fair. be that Esper Mentor makes people even more mad because without missteps, then they don't have a way to stop getting ther- <laughs> double therapied on the first two turns or whatever. I, I guess it, it all just kind of goes back to we can say conceptually that certain cards get better, but that does not mean the metagame gets better. It will make a few people happy and it might make other people an equal amount more mad. You know, because cards becoming better does not a metagame make. And I don't and I don't think that people who dislike mental misstep are entirely upset about the metagame either. Right. I mean, it, all, all these concepts about game design and, and color wheel, not color wheel, color pie theory, they all come to bear. People who don't like mental misstep and probe because of the Phyrexian mana, for example, they'll probably be happy, you know, with whatever metagame comes out as long as we're paying one, one or more mana for this effect. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it this all goes back to the divergent poll that you described earlier. You'd have to tease out why don't you like this card, right? Okay, so now you think this should be restricted, but why? What do you really want to see happen? <clears throat> and you and I mentioned in our offline conversation before the show that all it takes is, okay, uh, mental misstep is really bad against workshops today. I mean, that's common knowledge, right? 
And the major driver of that is workshops, most lists, aside from tiny robots, which is still, you know, flavor of the month kind of small thing. All these thorn decks have no one drops in them other than Solar Ring. Yep. What happens as soon as we print, as soon as Wizards prints an amazing one drop artifact that all the workshop decks want to play? It's just kind of a coincidence almost, (laughs) historically, that one hasn't been printed in the last 10 years. You know, Signal Pest yeah. and Bomat Courier. These cards, you know, Hope of Girifer so far, these cards aren't good enough to really push workshop decks in that direction. But imagine if they print, you know, a Pithing Needle that's on a 1-1 body or something, you know, a smaller, more efficient Revoker. That card immediately becomes amazing in shops and immediately becomes amazing for missteps and immediately screws up everyone's sideboard plan for workshops. <laughs> you know, these kind of things, all it takes is one printing to throw the whole metagame aspect of this thing on its head. Now, that situation would make some people even more upset about misstep. Again, from a game design standpoint, like, oh, great. You know, I'm playing this mana denial strategy and their spells against me are free on turn one. So that's going to upset some people. But other people are going to feel like, hey, this makes misstep even more interesting in this matchups, makes it harder for me to sideboard. And therefore, the matchup gets more interesting and and complex in my eyes. And that's a good thing. You, You can't please everyone. I mean, making one card more or less playable does not a metagame fix, and people aren't upset about the same thing. And I understand that's a totally speculative argument, right? That's not reality. But it's you know, it could happen that we restrict mental misstep, and then the next card that's previewed from from Amonkhet or whatever the next block is is this amazing uh, artifact, and now we're all yeah. thinking, oh boy, I wish we had those missteps back. Yeah, I mean, one of the cons of restricting misstep is that misstep provides yet another way to interact quickly on the draw and that's important in this format yet oh yeah yet there are lots of ways to do that more than ever i mean beyond force of will we now have mind break trap which sees a lot of play um you know in misdirection is always there once again yeah no one's i don't think anyone's ever going to be upset about mind break trap though right yeah just the cultural the the giraffe cost on that card is so culturally tied to stopping someone from going broken that yeah. there's never going to be a stigma against no, it, right? No one's going to be like, I, I can't believe we let the play, you know, allowed to play with four I, mind break traps. I guess where I come down on misstep is that I should also mention that I like misstep like fighting dredge because usually the dredge cards are like chain of vapor, nature's claim, historically that kind of stuff. Yep. And misstep has been really effective at combating that, helping combat that. But I guess where I ultimately come down is that if restricting misstep does actually mm, lessen some of the more obnoxious tempo aspects of the format, while broadening up, let's say, bringing back Merchant Scroll, Vamp, Mystical, Ancestral, and even Yogwill and Gushbond, that sounds pretty, in misdirection, that sounds pretty appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, conceptually, if that's all that happened then I think I might agree with you. The problem is you don't know if those cards will be good in the, the resulting metagame. I don't. I don't. But I, I feel really confident that Misdirection would come back. Misdirection yeah, currently as, sees no play. I mean, okay, Misdirection is a, a one-of, right? Yeah. That's good okay, for, I mean, for me. That's, I like that's, Misdirection. That's not very earth-shattering, right? If you're saying some I, mentor lists are going to have one misstep the other or thing Misdirection, is, that's I just also not... feel really confident that restricting Misstep makes, makes Duresses and Dark Rituals bet much better. And yeah. that those cards are going to see more play, both duress yeah. effects. And I feel like that's a positive good as well. Well, I'm not sure I agree with you. That is to say, I'm not sure that everyone will agree with you with the same percentage of players. Some people hate getting duressed more than they hate getting countered. I mean, I don't know if you've met these people, but when when Thoughtseize was reprinted in Standard in Theros block, there was major upheaval in the pro communities 
Now, granted, this is standard and not vintage, so grain of salt, but there was major upheaval. Tons of people hate the presence of discard, efficient discard being in formats. And just as many people who said, oh, I, I, you know, I, I would have cast this Ancestral, but he misstepped it, are going to be just as mad when you just thought seize them for their Ancestral on the play. <laughs> so I think that's just more example of you don't know how the community is going to actually feel when they get into the real waters of, uh, you know, a, a restricted misstep. We can't we can't predict how people are going to feel. That's true. That's true. Well, I don't think we're going to resolve this, but no, I, I don't I, think we can. I, <laughs> I do think but we've given our from, listeners lots of uh, things to think about, though. Yeah, but from my standpoint, that's why I believe the bar is very high for all of the non-dominance metrics for restriction. This is why, because when you're just when you're just railing against uh, a particular iteration of a system and not any you know one, not any deck dominance or anything like that you just don't like the play of a certain interaction that's common but not dominant, then it, it's, I think we have to have very strong, I don't know if it's consensus is the right word, but we have to have very, very strong uh, public opinion in order to make something like that happen in terms of being grounds for restriction. And I don't think we're there in, in, you know, on any one card today. Well, let's, let's move on then to another card, okay? Yeah. Um, so we've covered Probe and we've covered Misstep. Where do you want to go next? Gosh. Sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually feel very similar. So, you know what? Let, let's actually do this. Let's tackle Gush and Paradoxical Outcome together. One of okay. the arguments for Paradoxical Outcome, we don't need to spend much time on Paradoxical Outcome, but one of the arguments for Paradoxical Outcome is that essentially it's mind's desire, but unrestricted. Now, of <laughs> course, there is a difference between them. In fact, Paradoxical Outcome, outcome is easier to cast than mind's desire, which is actually an argument for its restriction. Um, on the other hand, Mind's desire is functionally uncounterable, yeah. you know, which, you know, except for misstep and really it's hard for Flusterstorm to counter all the desire copies because any amount of mana makes at least some of them uh, resolve. Um, but that is that difference to me, if you're saying you're paying two extra mana to make paradoxical outcome uncounterable, that's a pretty good argument, actually. I don't know how much weight you give to arguments that based on existing restrictions, but that's actually, that's a hard argument to deal with, Kevin. That, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, just on its face. That's a hard argument to deal with, I think. I, um, and I am not compelled by that argument. Well, the argument is, the argument leads to one of two conclusions. Either you unrestrict desire or you restrict paradoxical outcome. But I'll let you explain why you're not compelled by that argument. Here's what I wanted to get to. I was going to argue that if people think paradoxical outcome needs to be restricted, my position is that you should restrict Mox Opal instead. And I have a similar argument about Gush and Preordain. So that's why I wanted to touch, deal with both in tandem. But let's, instead of dealing with both in tandem, why don't you tell me why you're not persuaded by the argument that paradoxical outcome should remain unrestricted while Mind's Desire is restricted? Well, in short, that's kind of a game design argument that sets up a straw man. The card in question that is pay one blue and one colorless more to make you know, what, what was it again? You pay two more to make Paradoxical Outcome un uncounterable. Yeah. yeah. Well, for one, that's not the only difference. I know. Right? It's a simplification. It's an oversimplification because one is an instant, one's a sorcery, so there's a difference there. The other is that one is a storm card, which in, you know implies and assumes, and in fact necessitates, uh, the turn leading up to it to progress in a certain way. That is, multiple spells having played that turn to be of any value. Whereas Paradoxical Outcome doesn't require that. 
it's a totally different animal. You can spend a turn investing in Landmok's uh, defense grid, and then next turn you don't need to play. I mean, you could play more spells, but it's not necessary. It'll still have the same kind of impact, no matter whether or not those Moxen started their turn and play on your side or not. So I just I'm not compelled by that just because of how many hoops you have to jump through from a game plan design point standpoint to try and make one card into the other. When I mean, you could make a case that the decks that contain them have similar play patterns, which, um, yeah, <laughs> I would grant you that the decks that contain them have some similar play patterns. You know, you try to as quickly let, deploy your accelerants you as you let can. Let me ask you this: Do you think mine's desire, Do you think mine's desire should be unrestricted? No, I think mine's desire is properly restricted. But do I you would think argue. Sorry, I would argue that it wouldn't be as bad today as it was when it was printed. Because of cards like Mindbreak Trap, etc. And Plus Fluster Storm, Storm and, yeah, and so, other tools. Yeah, and, and because of the ubiquity of things like so, so you, um, Stony Silence. In, if, if Mind's Desire were unrestricted right now, would you call for its restriction? Or do you think it should be restricted? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I asked that question a, because I, I'm trying to understand whether you set up a kind of burden of proof or presumption against unrestriction for cards that are this different than you would if a card was unrestricted and you have a bar for restriction. That yeah, is, is there an asymmetry there? Uh, there's definitely an asymmetry because one of them is being so, driven by results and the other one is being driven by speculation. Of course okay. there's asymmetry. That's fair. Right? So yeah, the burden of proof is totally different for adding to the list versus so, removing. So it's hard for you to assess whether if desire was unrestricted, whether you would want to be restricted because you'd want right. to see how it performs. That's what you're yeah, saying. That, yeah. Okay. I, I'm not here to advocate for that, but that is exactly my position in the sense that if we were That's living fair. in an unrestricted desire environment right now, I can't tell you whether or not it would be problematically dominant. There's a chance that it wouldn't. There's a chance that it would. I suspect that it would not be. And I, I still... Think a, I, I think st the environment has has migrated thanks to all the factors we've yeah. cited already. To that, you know, we're in a co combo hostile environment right now. The and thing it, is, it still hasn't gone far enough. It could go even further. The thing is, though, that you could have you could have desire and paradoxical outcomes four of each. <laughs> Which would be really silly. <laughs> I mean, that sounds really that, potent. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, those decks have issues with but, density but, of effects. But right? maybe that. But maybe if that you draw them in the wrong order, they're bad. But maybe that means the two cards should be reversed. The, the desire should be unrestricted and paradoxical outcome. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, you understand what I'm saying? Desire should be unrestricted. I, I, I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> um, you know, and that's the other thing too is that desire. I mean. Similar play patterns, yes, but Desire makes the other okay. spells free and Paradoxical Outcome I, doesn't. I mean, well, there's just too many differences. We're going to present data on Paradoxical Outcome, and I'll, I'll let people judge for themselves. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that the, the tolerance for prevalence of Paradoxical Outcome decks is probably going to be lower than tolerance for other decks because of the combo nature and non-interactive nature of the, the deck. Um, and that certainly was proven true with Flash. Flash wasn't even 10% of the metagame. I think maybe at one point it was actually 10% and it was restricted because yeah. of the unfun component. Um, but what I would argue is that if Paradox of Auckland were a serious candidate for restriction, the card to actually restrict would be Mox Opal instead. Because I think Paradox of Glaucom, we've already said this, you, you and I both agree that Paradox of Glaucom would be hugely impacted by the restriction of Mox Opal oh, for yeah. lots of reasons. Because yeah. not only does Opal help cast paradoxical outcome but actually drawing more opals is important to not bottlenecking on blue to continue to cast future outcomes so i think i think if there's a that would severely weaken those decks it's and, structurally important to the way that deck plays in ways that grim monolith and chrome mox right. cannot abide now 
one of the counter arguments to that is that exactly one of the counter arguments to that is the old dark ritual versus restricting necro argument. Now the okay. problem I have with that is that that is such a clear example of a situation in which you have a deck that has a, a, a mana component that's really important, dark ritual. This we're talking about tricks, of course, and right. a draw engine component that's very important, necropotent. But what is problematic with that is that it almost loses nothing just to play with mox diamonds and other stuff. You know, you can still basically get reliable turn two necropotent. And so I don't think that that's a really persuasive argument. I think there is. I think restricting mox opal is actually much, much more painful for paradoxical outcome than restricting dark ritual was for necro in that old extended deck. I don't think. I think it's apples and oranges. But that's my position. So let's 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 turn to the let's turn to the gush case for a second and talk about the pros and cons. Um, we will get to the data on gush in detail. I will just simply point out very briefly that um, that gush's overall prevalence in the vintage metagame is pretty consistently lower than it was last year. I think fairly consistently. Um, for example, in uh, we're going to go over all the data in a moment, but in, um, in the uh, February dailies, Gush was exactly 26.6% of 3-1 or better decks. So it was about 26% of the metagame. In January, it was, it was just above 30, around 30%. So Gush is essentially between like 25 and 30% of the metagame uh, in these in these in the vintage, in the Magic Online uh, metagame. Now, in the January uh, premiere event, Gush was just uh, 20. Sorry, it was only 16% of the metagame. So it was actually the lowest I think it's ever been in any premiere event ever. Um, and of course, was back up in February to um, to 30% of the metagame. So in the last two months, we've in various data points, we've seen Gush basically between 16 and about 30% of the metagame. Um, when Gush was restricted in the past, it was, at least in 2003, it was something like 37, 38% of the metagame, if not more. Um, and you know, around, uh, 30 or more percent when it was restricted around 2008. Um, so I, I think from a dominance perspective, you have a viable argument, but I think it's generally just below the level of dominance that we had seen in the past from Gush decks. And it's certainly way below, you know, it's significantly below where it was last summer, last fall, certainly last spring when it was like, a, right after the restriction of Lodestone Golem, it was like, remember Kevin, it was like 60% of a couple of vintage metagames. Right. Um, there was a, yeah, there's a huge, enormous uptick. It almost doubled or tripled its representation online for a couple of weeks or months. But I think the strongest argument against restricting Gush itself is that it's below, well below its 2016 numbers. And it was permitted to exist throughout 2016 without restriction. Um, the the other argument for its against its restriction is the Mox Opal argument, which is that something else should be restricted instead. And that something else could be either, well, Monastery Mentor or Preordain, or in the lesser case, Misstep or Getaxian Probe. I'd like right. to focus on the, the former for a second. Um, but I also want to point out that in one of the narratives that's happened over time is people say Gush should never have been unrestricted. Yet when it was unrestricted in 2010, it essentially went through a three-year period where it was marginally played. It had a, a couple of appearances. It had a summer... You, you know, where um, it did pretty well in a few hands, but it was not really played that much. Even after I top forward with with Paul with the Gush Bob deck 
for a little while, it pretty much right. disappeared again. Until, it was not until really after Innistrad came out with Delver printed and, and Labman that Gush actually hit from that point. And I think that was in 2013 or 2013, right, Kevin? So three years after it's on restriction was when it really started surging and, and it kind of accelerated with the series of printings. So the narrative that Gush was always a problem and should never have been unrestricted, it's just flatly unempirical. It's not true. Um, and, it, it, you know, it really surged afterwards. But here's the question. The question is, if something should be done from this deck, this mentor deck, should it be mentor, Gush, or preordain? Let me just, um, let me just posit just is my strongest argument. I think... Preordain is the most logical card for restriction if we want to restrict something. It's because, first and foremost, Ponder is on the restricted list. And in Gush decks, I believe that Preordain is actually slightly better than Ponder. The upside of Ponder is that you can keep a one land hand and feel more confident that you're going to draw another land. But in general, in terms of its capacity to... Like, if you actually have a hand, for example, that has one land and you have Ponder or Preordain in it, or let's say it doesn't even have one land. Let's say it has whatever, a mixture of lands and spells. You generally lead with Preordain because it's just better <laughs> um, <laughs> in Gush decks, right? When you're not looking for just one card, but you're really trying to create better selection. Um, if Ponder is already restricted, then why is Preordain not the most obvious candidate? Also, Preordain appears in a lot of other decks like Pro. Preordain has appeared in all of these Oath decks because it's insane there. It also appears in, for example, these Jeskai control decks that have appeared on Magic Online that basically play a lot of control cards and Key Vault and Planeswalkers. Preordain appears all over the place. Um, it appears in our Paradoxical Outcome decks. In fact, Preordain is used in, I think, just about every Paradoxical Outcome deck, right, Kevin? Yeah, it I might, think so. It might not be yeah. used in Paradoxical Storm, but it, it probably is. It is in some. Yeah. I mean, Preordain is actually, the most, <laughs> from my perspective, the most obvious card for restriction if you're trying to hit something in Mentor. It essentially pushes these Mentor decks out of Turbo Xerox principle design construction principles. That is, and we're already seeing that movement, which is where you see a, like a lot of wastelands being in these decks. Um, I think that Preordain, you either have to play more land if you cut Preordain, or you have to substitute for much, much weaker cantrips like Slide of, Ma slide of Hand, right? Um, so I think Preordain is the most logical card for if something needs to be rooted from that deck. That, what do you think of that? I, I think you make a compelling case, but Preordain has much better PR than Gush does. The people who want something to be done about Mentor yeah. aren't thinking about the incremental selection of Preordain. They're thinking about those all those turns fueled by Gush, those two-land, you know, I'm going to play Mentor on turn three with a misstep back kind of hands that only Gush provides. Well, Gush gets a lot worse if you don't have Preordain, though, because then you, you're playing a lot of lands, and the virtual card advantage generated by the Gushing is much minimized. I think, and in fact, yeah. if you look at these decks, I think they're more likely to run four preordain than they are four gush in general. These mentor decks. Oh yeah, that's true. And so that also makes it a more logical restriction target. The other thing. Yes, many of those decks are four preordains and three gush. The other thing I would just like to point out is that if gush were restricted, let's just envision a world in which gush is restricted. I don't want to focus on the metagame per se, but I I really do want to get your thoughts on what the metagame would look like. I don't think that the world that people think would come into existence would actually arise. 
And specifically, I think that we are now at a point with the mentor deck that let's assume for the moment, for the sake of argument, I don't think this is empirically true, but many people believe it, that the Just Guy mentor deck or Blue White mentor deck is the best deck. Okay, just the best deck in the format. Let's assume that we restrict Gush. I don't think it really changes anything about that. I think that we are now at a point, Kevin, with Dig Through Time restricted, with Treasure Cruise restricted, and if you restrict Gush, that the best deck is still four mentors with some number of Jace Friends Prodigy and all those cards restricted. Because, because Jace Friends Prodigy is now in the format and it's so good against the Thorn decks that it generates card advantage that you don't really need. You can actually put... I would just jam a Merchant Scroll, maybe a Mystical Tutor into my Gush deck for the Restricted Gush. That you can Merchant Scroll for Ancestral and or Gush, and then you don't, you know, flashback quote unquote the Gush with Jace Friend's Prodigy for the second use. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. actually think that deck changes that much, honestly, because of the way it's currently constructed, just based upon the point we just made. You probably would have to add at least one land to those yeah, lists, exactly. right? Exactly. So you, re- yeah, you replace maybe. three Gush, two or three Gushes with a land, a Merchant Scroll, and then one other miscellaneous thing that you're currently not playing but there's clearly room for i i think ultimately i believe that if we restricted gush ultimately to to nail mentor mentor would eventually get restricted because a <laughs> paradoxical mentor illustrates that point that really what this is all about is mentoring harder than your opponent that's what it's about and yeah. this notion that there's an argument out there that if you restricted mentor then the gush decks would just use pyromancer well, my point is that if you restrict Gush, Mentor is still just as bad. <laughs> it might actually get worse because then the Mentor decks become more aggressive and less dirtily. They become more like paradoxical decks that are just trying to really mentor. It kind of kind of unleashes them from being constrained by their Gush trappings in a sense. <clears throat> and we've seen them pushing out of that shell for the over the course of the last year or exactly. two, right? Exactly. You were you were commenting to me offline the other day about how these gush decks are playing more lands than gush decks have ever had before. That's my point. That's my yeah. point is that they're not really, they don't really look like, I mean, in my gush book, I talk about how to design a gush deck to achieve all the levels of power and synergy. And right. that, you know, if you do, you if you do one through four of these things that I d- describe, you can really maximize your gush deck, but you don't have to do those things in order to or get value from gush. It's just that if you do all those things, you're maximizing, you're squeezing all the value out of gush. What I am saying is that already those decks are not designed to squeeze all the value out of gush. The mm-hmm. decks that are currently performing very well, like Stony Mental, these two, one to two wasteland, Wastelands main deck and 17 lands, those are not maximizing the value of Gush. What they are doing is they're positioning themselves in the metagame to fight workshops and paradoxical outcome and still be a very strong mentor deck and get some value from Gush. Right. I think restricting preordain would do so much more. It would have be so it, it's preordain is kind of the the link that connects the Gush to the other pieces because if you restrict preordain you decrease the value of Gush itself while also uh, really clipping the wings of the Mentor deck in terms of consistency and everything else. I just think that I think that restricting Gush would leave Mentor virtually untouched. Both Gush Mentor, I think you basically can play this restricted, restrict blue restricted list deck with Mentor and just be bonkers, yeah. right? You play with two deck, two or three Jace Friends Prodigy, restricted Gush, restricted Treasure Cruise, restricted Dig Through Time, and your deck is just about the same as it is now. <laughs> I, um, 
And in fact, you might even make, then eventually you lead to either restricting preordain or more likely mentor will eventually get it. Or if you really feel like you need to do something, strict preordain, and that's the logic card. What do you think? I think you make a fine case. And <clears throat> again, this kind of all goes back to what it is about the mentor deck and other gush decks, perhaps, that has people wanting change, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who agree with you. There are plenty of people who have said and are on record saying, Gush was not so bad until we got Mentor. And there are plenty of people who say, look at all these other variants of Mentor. I mean, it's not popular now, but we've played Thoughtcast Mentor. It is popular. And, it's done very well in Magic. Well, <laughs> it's not the default view, I would say. That, sure. that people, people still picture Jeskai Mentor as the default, but I, I see your point. Uh, but anyway, there's plenty of people who agree with you and think that, that Mentor is really kind of the, the overly pushed card that is, if you take Gush away, something else just steps in. And so I think that's something of a popular opinion. Your position about preordain and gush is also well made in the sense that I don't think that I don't think that gush decks can go back to being the maximizing gush kind of delver model in, if you take away preordain. Agreed. Right. Agreed. And you also can't you, you and, and no matter what you do in order to smooth out the lack of preordain, you end up making gush slightly worse. No matter how you approach it, you have to cut out one of the legs of the stool basically that makes gush so good. In, you know, in, in a vacuum. So I think for those people who just want to see the mentor deck not be uh, perform as well or not be as as I think rote as they view it today, then I think you've properly laid out how you could attack that. Uh, I also still feel the way I did about the other the other restrictions that we discussed before in that I'm not certain that there's no guarantee that people are just going to like the metagame that comes about after that. <laughs> but if people, if there are those people who think that mentor is kind of an abomination and a net bad thing for the environment, then those people are probably going to be in favor of mentors restriction just at face value. Yeah. So, it, it, this, so but, there are people so who don't like gush, different things you, about the deck, right? There yeah, are people so who don't like gush specifically, you know, leaning on some of the game design elements we talked well, about before. They don't think you should be able to do this for the zero mana. They think that, you're making workshops artificially good by playing these light mana bases. There's all kinds of positions on this front. Yeah, I think, so here's the thing. There's two, two points. One, I think that one of the reasons people don't like Gush is because they believe that if Gush were restricted, we would see a revival in other blue decks. Yeah. That this opening up of other blue options like mana drain, deck, mana drain type decks, right? Yeah. That's first. Second, I believe that people think that if you restrict Gush, you would clip mentor's wing and 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 not have the, the format be revolve around these tempo threats i think both arguments are specious if not extremely questionable yeah. the first is because i think that i don't think that if you restrict gush you actually the world turns into like control slaver again i think what actually happens is that we kind of mosey along the same path which is yeah that you have essentially this post-delve world where Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time as the pair of restricted cards are still the dominant draw engine. And you just add Gush and JVP and supplement it with cards like that. And you still have the exact same deck. Like, yeah. I really think restricting Gush does almost nothing to Gush Mentor. As we... yeah. The second thing is I think that um, Restricting Gush puts us on a path to eventually restricting Mentor. That's what I think happens. And so the question is, if that's true, do we ultimately restrict Mentor or do we try and attack Mentor a different way? <laughs> and I think the way to attack Mentor the other way would be to clip Preordain, which is a 
far heavier played card. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is like from a pure empirical perspective, Preordain sees more play than Gush. So why wouldn't it be the logical card for restriction? But yeah, I hear you. Inside point. that deck and out of that deck. Exactly. Um but there's also and, and in, you know in the, the con ponder, column the ponder conundrum. I mean it's a ponder yeah. conundrum. You, you mean why, in, again why why is ponder and isn't? It's incongruent at a minimum. In the con column though for the preordained restriction is that it hurts a lot of other decks possibly more. Mentor can swap in other cantrips. Mentor can take three ponders out and put in a merchant scroll and a top in another land, and it's still almost the same deck almost. But decks like Paradoxical Storm and, you know, Kelly Oath, those kind of decks that are using four preordains, they don't have such luck. Well, maybe that's the point. Maybe those decks shouldn't be playing with all these cantrips. In any case, you get you get a critical mass of them with Brainstorm, Ponder, and Preordain. There's still three, plus Probe. <laughs> well, you I know? mean, those decks are already playing those cards as well. I'm just saying it's possible that the Mentor deck suffers the least of all the archetypes that play Preordain. I... I think that, look, last year was the year Landstill won the Vintage Championship, but the previous two years was won by Oath decks with three or four Preordain. I think yeah. Preordain is the logical card. It's been a problem for a long time, and I think people are, I mean, I've, I've seen it. I've said that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it just doesn't make sense that you have Ponder restricted and Preordain not. In some, some perspective, it doesn't really make sense. Well, we have laid out several cards here already. Each one of them with their own list of pros and cons, some logical and speculative reasons for taking these various actions. But ultimately, it, we're faced with a plurality of options, and I find none of them overly compelling. You know, you've just cited the recent results for the overall metagame performance of Gush in the dailies online. And the paper results, which I haven't laid out in as much detail yet, they mirror the same thing. You know, Gush took a dip down in December, took a spike up in January, is back on the way down at the moment. It ebbs and flows. I think when there are so many options, and we've laid out all these different reasons why people object to any one particular card or deck, and all the positive and negative impacts that they could have, we just can't, we just can't take any approach, I don't think, that isn't driven by our traditional metrics at a time like this. Even if there's overall large unrest in the community. Even if 40% plus or minus of people think that something should be changed, we can't satisfy those people. That, that 40%, it's an unhittable target. No, you know, no one change is going to make those 40% of people happy. It's going to make some subset of them happy. And any subset you know, that's a fraction of that, in my opinion, is not worth attempting to satisfy from a, from a community standpoint. Hmm. As, as Wizards has alluded to in their summary, right? They said... We're watching the results and continuing to listen to feedback from the community. Well, the problem is, I wonder if they're making tick marks on a sheet anywhere about this community feedback, right? And how good are people at actually formulating their positions when they speak to someone that has the ear of wizards? I would encourage all of those of you who listen to our show and post on the various social media and fora that if you want to make a position to, to wizards on what you think should be done, go for it. Do it. I mean... More feedback is good, but don't make it over simple. Don't just say, we think mentoring is abomination or maybe Phyrexian mana was a mistake or mental misstep makes deck construction too rote or, you know, don't say those kind of things. Be, go a level detail deeper than that because that's the only way we're going to tease out this 40% number into anything useful. 
Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think we need to have some more sophisticated analysis at this point. I think it's so easy to get kind of swept up into groupthink narratives and not really, not really um, trying to trying to understand the situation and and from an, not only a database perspective but also from a understanding of the real dynamics of the metagame as opposed to what we hope might happen. Um, are we ready to actually present some of the metagame data? Well, sure. I don't know how much detail you'd like to go into, but I've got the the paper results from the last two and a half months, three months. And I mean, there's not too much to say except for they tell a similar narrative. The big uh, ebbs and flows in the last three months have surrounded mentor and shops, as they usually do. But I think it's very proximate to the card Walking Ballista. Yep. So in I don't have very many results for for December. Unfortunately, the paper results just kind of dried up that time of year. But in January, the top two decks were Mentor at 14 out of 44 total uh, top eight appearances and Shops at 10 out of 44. So neck and neck, Mentor is a little bit ahead. Note, this time when I calculated these results, we're only including paper tournaments with 16 or more players. Right. So we've just, we've kind of taken the weighted approach that we have in the past and been a little bit more heavy-handed with it, right? I'm not even including eight-person tournaments in here. This is all 16 or more paper tournaments, Shops and Mentor, one and two. The next most popular deck was Eldrazi at four. So not, not even, a, not even a, a, you know, a third of what the Mentor put up. But it's important to note that that month of January was punctuated by the release of Ether Revolt. January 20, Walking Ballista becomes legal. And if you look at the premiere event, now I know this isn't paper, but if you look at the January premiere event, that top eight, yeah. which that top eight, which is won by Rich Shea on the the ballista, ballista shops, deck. yeah, yeah, had four of those ballista shop lists in it and zero copies of Gush, exactly, or or, or Mentor, yeah. I mean, January, the end of January was punctuated by a huge uptick in workshops online and in paper. Ballista had a huge impact. And then going into February in paper, the top deck was Shops with eight out of 32 appearances in this paper data. The second best deck was Eldrazi, White Eldrazi with, with six, just <laughs> under Shops. That mentor in the paper world has been mired at two out of 32 appearances, tied with Oath and Four Color Control and Landstill. I mean, Ballista made a huge upswing in popularity of workshops at the end of January, early February. Now, not enough time has elapsed in February slash March now for us to have a lot of paper results. We don't have the full report for January. I'm sorry, February for paper. Most of it. We got most of it. But one thing you can point to then is the combination of Ballista and the menace of paradoxical outcomes still being out there led to basically the advent of Silent Mentor, of Stony Silence yep. and Mentor. Yep. And the February premiere event, the February premiere event has first and second place mentor decks, fourth and fifth place mentor decks, and one only one uh, Ravager Shops deck in the top eight. So Mentor reestablished itself in this Stony Silence iteration to try and combat its, you know, its top predators, which were the uptick in workshops and paradoxical outcome, and splash damage on Eldrazi. So in my opinion, this is just more ebb and flow of the metagame. I don't think this is any kind of ending point here. Well, you know, we haven't reached a landing point. Life's a journey, not a destination. <laughs> and 
this is just more reacting to new printings, reacting to metagame ebb and flow. And the next question is going to be, what's good against Silent Mentor, right? Do you have overall aggregate numbers in the paper over the entire three-month period for Shops and Gush in particular? I do. Over that whole period. Or Thorn Over that whole period. Workshops had 18 appearances. Mentor had 18 appearances. Eldrazi had 11. Wow. So Shops and Eldrazi together crushed Mentor appearances. That's true. There is five appearances of Pyromancer. So the Thorn decks were about 29 versus 23 of the Gush decks over that whole period. Well, I have similar numbers for the dailies if you want me to give them now. Yeah, go ahead. So um, I've collected January and February, and I'll, I'll have these actually published potentially on Eternal Central, if not the Menadrain. Um, there were 100... First of all, January and February have been very good for dailies. Dailies have fired pretty consistently um, in January and February. Um, in January, there were 103 decks reported, which is a good a good number. Is that 3-1 or better? That's 3-1 or, or better, right. 3-1 or better. Okay. And that includes 34 Gush decks and 40 Thorn decks and four Paradoxical Outcome decks. So Paradoxical Outcome decks were 3.88%, uh, whereas uh, Thorn decks were 39%, and Gush decks were 33%. Um, and what's particularly interesting, I think that's somewhat misleading, and I'll tell you why it's misleading. It's misleading because Aether Revolt was not legal until, I believe, the between the 18th and the 20th so it was first legal on the 20th because there was no daily fired in the 19th so what's interesting is that you have a bell cur- you have a bell curve basically the first half of january gush decks in the dailies that were 2232222 then 1111 and then <laughs> and then uh, after legal they are 2100 2012121210. So, right. And the parallel process for Thorn decks was the first half of the month 1101112002322 and then Aethervolt becomes legal and they go 2244223111113 and that's the end of the month. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so the shop, the thorn decks are clustered in the second half of the month, and the gush decks are clustered in the first half. Yeah. So you essentially have two overlaying dynamics, right? People inter- were just very excited by walking ballista. Yeah. Yep. Now February, we had dailies firing all the time, and there were 109 decks, and things, as you noted, rebalanced out. But here's the breakdown: there were 30 gush decks, which is 20, 27.5%. Um, I, I said 29 earlier. I meant 30. There were 30 gush decks, and there were 29 thorn decks at 26.6%. But here's here's the news, Kevin. Remember how I said there were four paradoxical outcome decks in January? Right. Out of 109, do you want to take a guess as to how many appeared in February? Uh, 12. 14. Oh, nice. They they went from four, less than 4% to 13% of the, the total reported decks. Wow. And what's particularly interesting about it, talking about clusters, is that most of those were in the second half of the month. So just in terms of the numbers, the first 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 dailies had zero paradoxical outcome decks. Wow. The, the remainder had 1, 1, 1, 2, 2, 0, 2, 2, 0, 2, 1. 
just, just, I love it. I mean, it just goes to show how how fickle the metagame can be and how people get excited about one thing or another. It's true. It really picks up. But here's the other part. Let me tell you the Paradoxical Outcomes decks that saw play. In order, chronologically. Yeah. Paradoxical Outcome, Paradoxical, o- Paradoxical Outcome Storm, P.O. Oath, Storm, Mentor, Storm, Mentor, Mentor, Oath, Mentor, 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 Tezzeret, Oath, Oath. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. There's more variety in that archetype online than there is in paper. Extreme. There was only technically two dedicated Storm decks and then one hybrid Mentor Storm. The rest were Mentor. There was one, two, three, four, five mentor plus the one hybrid mentor. And then one, two, three, what, three oath, and then the Tezzeret. So it's mostly paradoxical mentor. You know, Kevin and I, when I tweeted our deck list it, uh, yeah. after champs, I said, a deck for the future. Yeah. I think that's still true. <laughs> a deck for the future. Paradoxical Mentor is the best performing ment- uh, Paradoxical Outcome deck, according wow. to the dailies, daily results. Fascinating. Uh, Oath is not bad itself. I will mention and note that I did test an Oath deck before Vintage Champs. Um, there were four Oath decks, I believe. Yeah, four Oath decks reported in the second half of February, um, the dailies. And Oath is just a natural card with Paradoxical Outcome because when it's dead, you can just return it as another permanent. So it works really well right. in, in that archetype. Um, there are some other interesting things I, I might want to point out, but um, um, hard to know where to begin. Um, I, I mean, I really enjoyed actually looking at some of these results. One thing I will note is that um, Met Merfolk had like a brief little resurgence. I don't know if you've noticed that in the paper, but there have been a couple Merfolk deck lists that have popped back up. Uh, at the beginning of February and end of January, this guy playing this guy playing Shahili Oath did really well, and there was a bunch of Oath decks. Uh, let me see how many Oath. I'm not sure if I'm able to tell you quick quickly, but there was at least like five, I think maybe seven, actually seven instances of you know, seven, eight, nine. I'm looking at nine, maybe ten Shahili Oath decks in the wow. in February. Ported. Um, that was not nearly that popular in paper. That's really interesting. <laughs> Not even close. So, and again, this all goes to the, what I was saying in in my article uh, in February that you see these kind of trends in, in dailies, right? As the same people are battling day after day, week after week, you know, making small tweaks to their deck, trying to compete in the evolving metagame. But um, there's, a, I mean, what I think is most revealing from my perspective is that Gush and Thorn decks are essentially tied. In January, I think it's clear that I mean, it's empirically a fact that they that uh, shops did better. In fact, overall, the number one best performing deck in all these daily results of January and February is Ravager Shops. Ravager Shops is by far, in a statistically significant manner, the best performing specific deck type deck, not Mentor, gosh. And so if you're looking for the empirically best deck, I believe it's Ravager Shops. The other thing just I just want to point out is that the metagame has basically become, at the end of February, I mean, if you add Paradoxical Outcome, Thorn Decks, and Gush Decks, that is, let me just add them together, Rick. That's seventy. That's 66, that's two-thirds of the metagame. 67% of the metagame is Paradoxical Outcome, Thorn, and Gush. Just those three archetypes. So really, the top tier, it appears to me, is is that. Um, followed Plus probably, Eldrazi. You know, Eldrazi kind so of no, Eldrazi. Flows. Sorry, Eld, Eld, I'm calling them Thorn Decks. Thorn Decks. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yep, you're group, grouping them together, of course. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah, in that case, I would entirely agree. I mean, those three 
Those three wings of the metagame are jockeying for position over the course of the last three months, and that's the story. That's the story. The story, and it sounds like the temporary equilibria is that kind of mentor has fended off <laughs> the shop, maybe to some extent. I mean, I think Stony Silence is really good against Ballista Shops. Oh, I think yeah. the, the question is going to be, from each of these archetypes, can shops evolve? So Foundry, the whole point of Foundry, from my perspective, is that Foundry is really good in the shop's mirror, right? Like, that's the card you want in the mirror, but it's not really that good against Gush, in my opinion, Foundry Inspector, right? Well, it improves the clock. It's, 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 it's okay. good for pressure, but it's, it's... okay. It's not that great. It's <laughs> pretty dirtily, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I mean, it... I don't know. It makes it makes certain draws really, really explosive. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's bad, but it's. Uh, I, you, I do agree that it's probably at its best in the mirror. Right. The question is, can, how do these chop decks need to evolve to to deal to sort of deal with uh, Stony Silence and Null Rod? Because they're right now Ravager is totally built around being able to deal with to, uh, you know, it's totally built around being able to function without a Null Rod in play. Um, <clears throat> or is it possible that another archetype can step in when these mentor decks are somewhat diluted by having cards like Stony Silence and, and uh, Mindbreak Trap in the main, you know? It right. could be that that's an opening for something like Bug Control, you know, the Leovold decks, which aren't nearly as impacted by those two cards. Yeah. I, I should also mention that Gush decks, and uh, not Gush, Dredge decks in February were just over 7% of the metagame. Um, but almost all but one of the Dredge decks was in the first half of the month. So I'm not sure why these things are so weirdly balanced. Where like, yeah. <laughs> And actually, well, that kind of makes sense, though, because if Paradoxical Outcome surges, then that explains maybe Dredge decline. Like, well, if nothing else, this particular quarter represents exactly why you and I were so much against the prior banner restricted list schedule and so much in favor of the current one because Ether Revolt has just had a huge upheaval on the metagame. Yep. If you look at the win the you know the wins against the field for the last two premier events in January, Shops was the most represented deck at 21.5%, but it's win percentage against the field. Now, this was basically the new Ballista flavor at that time. The win percentage was 72.2% against Whoa. the field. That, yeah. That is yeah. a ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous win <laughs> that, percentage. That's pretty much the ceiling of what you can get for a heavily played deck. Right, right. And then you go to February, and Shops was the, I mean, almost tied for the fourth third or fourth most represented deck. I mean, it went way down the list, and it, only, it was only 50% against the field, whereas Gush jumped up to 57%. 57% is a respectable win percentage when you're 30% of the metagame. So, I mean, these things, <laughs> this last three months has, has only reinforced the, the even in eternal formats than vintage that, um, that new printings are still having a very powerful impact on our day-to-day. Um, and I, you know, it's hard to know exactly where things are going to land. I think the premiere event this month will be pretty important as well. Um, unfortunately, I will not be able to play it. That'll be my birthday weekend. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, if you're a shop deck, you got to figure out how can you consistently do well when your mentor opponent is playing with like four plows, Jace Friends Prodigy, Wastelands, and Null Rods and Stony Silences. Um, if you are um, a mentor player, I think you've got to still be concerned about the paradoxical outcome decks and not shortchange yourself in terms of stony silence. Um, the stony silence decks, they've clearly 
adopted other tactics. I mean, I still really like our. I think our paradoxical outcome deck is pretty is still the the mentor the version. Look, we considered Storm Oath and Mentor and went Mentor for a reason. Yeah. Um, I think that deck is probably still continues to be really well positioned to attack Stony Silence Mentor with um, or Gushment. Just you just gotta have like at least probably five, if not six, ways to deal with the Stony Silence. Right. And even if you don't can't, you can just easily not easily, but still pretty effectively and reliably. Um, so I mean, I think there's a lot of directions. So it's unclear what where the metagame will go. I do think though that there are X factors like the. You know the Oath decks, the Leovold decks, and the Dredge decks. All their relative pre- prevalence definitely um, affects the calculations that people will be making um, going forward. Landstill also has made a number of appearances in here. It's it's far from a dead deck. It continues to do pretty well. I don't know if. Eh. Yep, agreed. I don't know how many. A bug is bug still remains an exciting kind of X factor, but it just hasn't been able to crest the wave. Right. Part of the challenge, I think, is that Bug is a little bit more of a metagame deck than all these others, and so it's hard to adapt a metagame deck to an ever-changing metagame. (laughs) Well, Steve, I don't know exactly where we go from here, but I think it's pretty clear that you and I, you know, have our own uh, long-standing positions in terms of banner-restricted list policy, and I'm certain that there are people listening to this who think that we haven't given their particular position. It's it's full due on any one card or deck or or reason for making a a change but i would just reinforce what i said earlier and we know from this announcement quite literally that wizards is listening to the community so you don't have to convince us you just have to convince them (laughs) (laughs) so you know write to your local representative about (laughs) what your position is on the ban and restricted list policy and other than that Try to find a good way to position yourself amongst all these null rods. Hmm. I'm liking the format. I'm liking where it's headed. I feel like we've kind of finally gotten to a place where we have a lot more balance between the Paradoxical decks, the Gush decks, and the Thorn decks. It'll be interesting to see how the whole thing evolves from here. Yeah, I agree. And I like that there is still room for jockeying. So wherever we go from here, thank you for listening to episode 62 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.